Who still remembers Pampiro Furpo? Who booked the screw job in Montreal? Who has a good friend named Weasel Dooley? Everyone knows it's corny. Who managed Bobby Eaton and Condry? Who managed Stan Lane and Dr. Tom? Who's sick and tired of Kenny Olivier? Everyone knows it's corny. Took a shoot, fought off of the scaffolding. Who bled a gusher in a white suit? Who said Ronnie Garvin went up like the challenger? Everyone knows it's corny. It's Jim Cornette's drive through. He'll answer questions from you. And he won the pony too. Thank you, fuck you, bye. 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 Hello again, friends. And you are our friends. And welcome back to another edition of Jim Cornette's drive Through right here on another winter's day in 2023. I'm your host, the great Brian Last. We have questions and a review later on. And we're going to talk about some other stuff, too. But let's get things going right away by talking about the news that has broken over the last day, the passing of Jerry Jarrett with this man, the leader of the cult of Cornet, the star of the drive-thru, Mr. Jim Cornet. Well, you've, you and I have been engaging in a little silliness right before we went on the air, trying to get motivated to do this in the proper way. And it didn't it didn't hurt that you blew the first take of your intro three words in and had to do it again. That gave me a chuckle. But again, we are sitting here, you know, having to, for unfortunate reasons, talk about somebody that we've talked about many times in the past and their contributions to the business and et cetera, but focusing on, you know, somebody else that we've just lost and I mean, this wasn't, it wasn't one of those things like uh, the Jay Briscoe, the suddenness and the, you know, I mean, uh, I was not aware that Jerry was even sick and he just did the Tales from the Territories shoot last, uh, I guess they shot that last summer, which aired in the fall and, and you know, uh, uh, spoke to Evan Husney at, at you know, uh, Dark Side and he said that he was you know, great and seemed like, and he looked like Jerry has for the last however many years. But he was 80 years old. And, you know, I, I don't know exactly what the cause was. It's been not even 24 hours since we heard this. And there's people that I could have called, but to be honest, I'm tired of calling people, asking about what was wrong with people when they passed away. So I just haven't done that yet. Point is, it happened. And uh, as I was going to say, it wasn't like, you know, the situation with Jay where it just came out of nowhere and a guy, you know, with his kids in the car down the road from the house. But, you know, it, it, uh, it we are starting to, again, realize how many of the great personalities in whatever field in wrestling or managing or promoting or booking or whatever that you know that aren't with us anymore and this is why you know jerry was he was the youngest owner of a territory at one time which is why he's 
pretty much one of the last the last one does, ones to go. Uh, can you think, excepting Vince McMahon, who's still around as we know, was he the next most important, most successful wrestling promoter still alive? Some people might say Bill Watts, but he was truthfully not a promoter as long, nor he had a hotter period, but for longevity, he wasn't as successful as Jerry and in multiple locations. Anyway, your thoughts. I'd hate to argue over who was more important. Uh, you know, that's a bigger discussion. Right. But in terms of success, especially considering the period of time and success as both a promoter and a booker, because you have to separate them because he started as a booker before he was the promoter. So I think you do have to separate that. The other ones who were still alive, Ron Fuller, obviously Southeastern, Vince McMahon, like you mentioned. There aren't too many. I mean, it's one of these moments where you stop and you think, yeah, the territories have been gone a long time. And Jerry, and this is why I always recognize Jeff Jarrett. And uh, because it ran in the Jarrett family, and as we'll we'll probably talk about from where Jerry learned booking and promoting, it ran in the Welch family. They wanted to to run towns, to start territories, to open territories, to open towns, to book talent, rather than just concentrating on just being wrestlers and or just in their home market. Uh, and that's why I said, Jeff, who else? You know, people, uh, you know, Global Force didn't go. Well, who else started a Global Force? And before that, it was Jeff and Jerry that started TNA. Who else started TNA? That thing's still around. Um, You know, it, it ran in the family that they had an aptitude for the wrestling business, the business of the business. And Jerry started, he always, as you said, he not only, he was a booker before he ever even wrestled, which is almost unheard of in, you know, in the territory days, especially. But Especially you know, considering his age. Well, yes, because, um, well, let's go back with, I've talked so many times about Christine Jarrett, teeny. When Jerry was three years old, I think two or three years old, that's when she got to part-time job selling tickets for the Goulas Welch booking office in Nashville out of a ticket window at a shoe store in downtown Nashville. Um, she needed extra money because Jerry's father, after Jerry was born, and I think was it, I can't remember, Carolyn was a couple years younger, but Jerry's father had been a service in World War II. It was actually wartime. And shortly after he came home is when they were divorced and she needed extra money. So she gets the job selling tickets, you know, for the wrestling matches at the shoe store and ends up not only selling tickets at the matches, going to work in Goulas and Welch's office and then running the office. And she was basically the office manager. They had Nina Bond forever, but Teeny ran the the office. Um, and then not only selling tickets at Towns, but then you know, she had Jerry selling the five cent slamogram program at the matches in Nashville when he was seven years old, in the late forties. And you've got a couple of them from that time period. They're 
four-page newsprint foldovers and went for five cents a piece. And that was his first job in the wrestling business. And then when he was a teenager, he made extra money by promoting spot shows and, you know, putting up posters and going around town trying to get, sell ads in a program. And when he got out of school, he took it to a, you know, a little more a bigger level as far as going out and the grassroots promotion of wrestling. It used to be just like the, you know, when the county fair came to town or the carnival or fucking whatever. So, meanwhile, I don't think people understand when we say the Goulas Welch Wrestling Office and people think, oh, the 60s and 70s in Tennessee. Roy Welch had been booking wrestlers out of Nashville since, what was it, either the late 30s or very early 40s. And he brought Nick Goulas up from Birmingham to use as his front man because he was still a wrestler, as were his brothers, Herb and Jack and Lester. And, you know, so by, especially in those days, the promoter couldn't also be known as, you know, or the booker couldn't be known. People didn't know what a booker was. You couldn't be the promoter and wrestler at the same time. That would look funny. So Nick was the public face until Roy, you know, retired. But, uh, again, Roy had seen early on that the way to make money in wrestling was to have a group of guys, a group of talent that was loyal to you and to book them out to different promoters and to have a booking office. That was the difference in the days before television. That was the difference between a guy, a promoter who ran his town like Cleveland and a booking office where there was a centralized group of guys and a promoter that booked that talent out to, you know, other places. And so that's what Roy and Roy Welch had only been wrestling in the late thirties, about 10 years. But we see from some of Scott Teal's wonderful research, especially the book on the history of wrestling in Amarillo, Texas, that Roy Welch was wrestling there in, in 1930. And again, in 1932, the, in 32, he brought Pat Malone, the green shadow. He had him with him too. That they would later on go to, to, uh, you know, to work together for 40 fucking years. And he was learning this shit from Cal Farley and Dutch Mantell, the original Dutch Mantell, who now I found out turned pro in 1896. So that means that Jerry Jarrett learned booking and promoting wrestling from a guy who learned from a guy who was a pro in 1896. So the point is, that's what the, the Welch, Roy Welch set up that booking office. And even before television, Goulas and Welch booked tons of guys into different fucking places all around the Southeast. And when they gradually built that territory, especially when TV came along and it became easier to, to promote these guys in that region, it was one of the biggest geographic territories in the country, and they had more wrestlers and more towns running than almost any other territory. And the only two of the modern territories that were still under the same ownership in the television era, completely through 
from beforehand were Jim Crockett promotions in the Carolinas because of Crockett Sr. starting in the 30s and Goulas and Welch in Tennessee and Nashville. Every other territory, the modern territories, as they formed, they had changed hands from the pre-television era. And a guy who became a big star on national television in the early 50s, like Vern Gagne, would go home and buy his, into his own territory. Tennessee and the surrounding area and the Carolinas weathered that all through those years. So anyway, Jerry, as a result of being around the office and, and Teeny having worked for Roy at that point for 20 years, Jerry, you know, becomes a referee and starts riding to Memphis with Roy Welch. And again, Memphis had been an acquisition. Remember, they Goulas and Welch started with Nashville, and then they annexed Chattanooga. And in the early 50s, they got Birmingham from, oh, who was the old promoter down there? Chris Jordan. Because Nick always wanted Birmingham because that was his hometown. Now he's the big deal in Birmingham wrestling. And, the, and Birmingham and Memphis both ran on Monday nights. So Nick would always go to Birmingham, and then in, what was it, 57, 58, when they finally got control of Memphis, Roy, because his family by then had settled up in Dyersburg in West Tennessee, Roy would go to Memphis every Monday. And he wouldn't let Nick fuck with Memphis. It was the Golden City, right? Roy would install his own bookers. His son, Buddy Fuller, when they got Memphis, he put Buddy in, in charge of booking. Or he'd send Buddy to open up a territory in Alabama if some towns were dark, or Louisiana. Nick and Roy almost had Florida in the 40s. They sent Nick down, and he ran Tampa for a while. And he was always trying to take over more territory. So now he's going to Memphis every Monday night in the mid-60s, and Roy was in charge of Memphis. And you could kind of tell the cards, the lineups in the newspaper were the same verbiage and the same some of the same talent and the same kind of things they'd been doing for years right since Roy had taken over but it, it, the story was and you know he started asking Jerry well, what do you think and I mean the first time Jerry said that Roy Welch asked him what he thought Jerry came in the office because they hadn't smartened him up yet when he was a teenager or whatever and he said I hate to tell you, but on the town the other night, I think two of the guys had a fake match. And Roy said, do tell. What, what, why do you think that? Well, it just seemed to me they weren't trying very hard. <laughs> so, they, you know, anyway, Roy likes him and he's he on the they smarten him up. And on the way to Memphis and back, Roy would say, well, what would you do? And Jerry would give him ideas for the Memphis cards. So finally, like, what was it, 1967, Roy announces to the boys that the new booker is Jerry Jarrett. The kid's been running those spot shows. And a bunch of guys just fucking, well, bullshit. And, oh, what the fuck? And, they, and he said, you dumb son of a bitches. He's been booking for the last three months. I just didn't tell you. And so at any rate... Did Jerry uh, ever forget which guys gave him a hard time? I don't think so. <laughs> Saul Weingroff, right? Isn't that the story? Well, Saul didn't do it right then, but Saul later on. And, and that story uh, that Jerry told me, because I asked him, I think it was disputed by George Weingroff from what I heard. But nevertheless, 
the story goes that when Jerry opened up the northern end up here, which we'll get to in a second, that Saul wanted to be booked in Bowling Green, which was an hour from Nashville, instead of Lexington on Thursday nights, Kentucky, which was four hours back then. And because Bowling Green was outdrawing Lexington. And Jerry heard about it and said, all right. And so then later on, when Lexington was outdrawing Bowling Green, Saul goes up to him, well, why ain't I booked in Lexington? He said, I heard you don't want to be booked in Lexington, and I intend to honor your request for the rest of our lives. <laughs> and then Saul was up. I think there was some heat with Nick, too, at that point. Uh, but anyway, that's so that's what happened is Jerry starts booking Memphis. And he's 25 years old, and I don't know if he had actually even refereed at that point. But I think they may have said, well, he's got to get in the ring and have some perspective on that. So he started refereeing. And then the story, well, you know, one night, same as happens with a lot of guys, somebody didn't show up on a spot show and they were short a guy and they said, well, you go, you need to work. What? And they put a hood on him. And then later on, I think he realized, well, you know, I not only – I can I can probably get over because he was young when all the baby faces in the Tennessee territory were older. You know, Eddie Marlin, who Jerry helped tremendously and booked and, you know, became his father-in-law. But Jackie Fargo, who Jerry kind of gave a renaissance to because Fargo had been, he'd been in Memphis so long at one point, he just kind of was expected to be there. And he was up and down the card in the mid-late 60s. and. He had a, you know, lounge in Memphis and a sign painting business he got Lawler involved with. But Jerry remembered the fabulous Fargos and how much, you know, they got over with him, seeing them walk in the building, you know, when he was fucking, when he was a teenager. He was a teenage boy. So the fabulous Fargos were over with him. They're like the road warriors of their day. So he repushed and repackaged Jackie Fargo into the fucking legend and ended up, you know, not only did uh, Jackie have a renaissance there when in the early, especially in the late 69, early 70, when Jerry really had firm control of the book, but also Jackie was on top with Al Green in the first sellout of the Mid-South Coliseum when they moved there in 1972. And Jackie Fargo had not drawn 11,000 people in Memphis in a long fucking time. So it, it had to be part of the booking and the usage, right? But at that point, he didn't have the book for, what, a year, and he was starting to look for other towns, which I have to think that was advice from Roy Welch. That was the M.O. And everybody said, okay, the... The band across what is now Interstate 64, well, I guess it was then, it was built by then, Evansville, Indiana, Louisville, Kentucky, Lexington, Kentucky, and probably at that point over into maybe Beckley, those towns were dark. That meant they weren't, they weren't being run for live events. They didn't have a local television. Bruiser had forsaken Louisville and Evansville and, uh, you know, it, it it was open. So Jerry kept coming up here trying to get TV and trying to get TV. 
And I think he actually got Lexington, maybe even Evansville first, but eventually he got Louisville, as we've talked about in our retrospectives, to open up Louisville in June of 1970. He was on TV for, I think we figured out, 10 or 12 weeks, one or the other, and then opened up weekly live live events and ran the same building in the same town every week for the next 27 fucking years. And we've talked about the houses in Louisville, and, you know, Evansville was a town. I mean, bless them out there. Love the rock bar But that's when, by that point, Teeny was not only instrumental to the Goulas Welch office, and she was the prime ticket seller on Saturday nights and or on the, any nights they ran the fairgrounds in Nashville, and all the fans loved her there. Jerry gave her half of his business in Louisville Wrestling Enterprises and these towns up here. So I know that she was definitely, she was, and she did fulfill the function of promoter of these towns as when we've talked about that aspect and you can find it on the YouTube channel. She was the promoter, dealing with the TV, dealing with the newspaper, dealing with the building, checking up the box office. So she predates Ann Gunkel as a wrestling promoter, and and bless her little pee-picking heart, I guarantee Ann Gunkel didn't work as hard or do as many things as Christine Jarrett did. And as far as female promoters in wrestling, you can point to Eileen Eaton, but she inherited the business from her husband and really passed it to be run by her son and spent more time, I understand, with the boxing in than wrestling at the Olympic. So... At that point, Christine was the, if not the only, certainly the most successful, and this was before Lee Maivia, the only female promoter in the business, in the United States at least, right? Yeah, you went over the other list, and obviously there have been yeah. recent things on TV. Leah Maivia did promote, but it was much later. She wasn't the first. So, and Christine was basically promoting with Louisville and Evansville and the spot shows that she either ran Lexington, Kentucky during those years, once a month, and a spot show the other three weeks on a Thursday or oftentimes Saturday. I would say between 1970 and when she finally got off the road in, what was it, maybe 94, 95, she had run as many as 175 live events a year. She was responsible for 52 in Louisville, 52 in Evansville, at least 12 in Lexington and three other Thursdays a month. That's 36 plus some Saturdays. I remember spending many a Saturday night in Madisonville, Kentucky. So now, you know, he had set her up as partners in the promotion. So once again, because he was still wrestling the promoter couldn't also be a wrestler in the people's eyes. He did the same thing that Roy had done with Nick, but in this case, it's his mother who every one of the fans loved because she took time to talk to every single one of them. And she was a celebrity in the building, too. There goes Mrs. Jarrett. That's Jerry Jarrett's mother. And so now he's become the booker. He's started refereeing. He's looking to open up these towns. And then he becomes, before he's even 30, the top, actually, one of the three most popular baby faces in the territory and the town you were in, depending on whether he was number one, number two, or number three. He starts wrestling, and 
let's face it, everybody's seen Jerry. He had no he was a good athlete in school for what that was worth, but he had no physique whatsoever. But he was young and he had the blonde hair and he could sell. And he understood psychology. And even if his, I mean, Jeff is a better worker than Jerry ever was from a standpoint of how the shit looked in the ring and how athletic he was and et cetera, and his physique, a whole nine yards. But at the same time, Jeff never had the chance, and most people never will again, to draw the money that Jerry Jarrett did in the ring for about a four or five year period where he was working on top and he never he never made himself the singles champion and he never he put himself in with Lawler when he was the top single heel because he he get heat on Lawler the way he could sell and the sympathy people had for him he never put the belt on himself he put tag belts on himself cuz that was the way that he originally made a splash in the business he started wrestling underneath Right. And you would see his name, Jerry Jarrett, in the second match or whatever. And then on television, they would tell, start telling the story. Well, he seems to be getting a little better. And then I think finally, maybe on TV, he won one time and he would do an interview every now and then where he credited his, his mentor, his trainer that was really helping him out and bringing him along, but nobody knew who it was. And finally, they pulled the trigger on the angle. Where, and I can't even remember, it was before my time, This and it was Memphis TV. But the heels, whoever they fucking were, probably the interns of Ken Ramey, as I think about it now. They get on fucking Jerry Jarrett, and here comes one of the biggest heels in the territory for the past 10 years, Tojo Yamamoto, and makes the comeback. And the people are, and they reveal that he's the one, which was a shoot. He's the one that's been training Jerry Jarrett to be a wrestler. And instantly, Tojo's, and now Tojo and Jerry Jarrett are the biggest babyface tag team and against the interns, against the Von Brauners, against Don and Al Green. That Tojo and Jerry is what popped Louisville. And Jerry Jarrett became. And he didn't need sometimes to bring Fargo up here for the, I don't think Fargo appeared up here for the first year because he was down in Nick's more established towns. But Jerry Jarrett became the top baby face in Louisville, Jerry and Tojo. And Fargo was the guy in Memphis, but Jerry and Tojo were the tag team. And, you know, so now he's, he's one of the top fucking baby faces and they're selling pictures of him hand over fist because he's, like I said, he's one of the only Tojo was not a good looking man for the ladies, right? Even though he was over as fuck and Fargo had his clientele and most of them had beehives from the fifties. So here's blonde haired 28 year old Jerry Jarrett and the girls are swooning. So he is, so he's a promoter of some of the towns He's a booker of the the main town in the territory and his own towns, and he's one of the top baby faces. And his mother is handling his towns for him. And oh, and another one of the people that Roy Welch, when he got in the ring, had work out with him. As you heard the story on Tales from the Territories, 
was Sailor Moran. And if you go back and look at that Amarillo book I was talking about before, Sailor Moran is one of the old-time fucking shooters that was working in West Texas in the 30s with Roy Welch. So he knew this fucking guy because he knew that all these guys that were going to be jealous that had been, and even in the other end of the territory, Nick's Booker, Lynn Rossi, was never a fan of the Jarrett philosophy, right? They were they were liable to try to take it out on, which Mario Galento later on would, for real, on live Memphis TV. So that's why he said, if you're going to be in the ring, you got to, Tojo will teach you how to work, and Sailor Moran will teach you how to take care of yourself. And again, the Mario Galento story, the story has changed over time based on who was telling it and when, but one of the interesting facets of it that has kind of been a universal part of the story for at least a little while is the idea that Roy Welch would have put Mario Galento up to this, considering what you just said about Sailor Moran. Well, and see, here's the thing. And a lot of people, and I saw somebody wrote a piece on the internet and mentioned, well, Jerry Jarrett beat Goulas and Welch in the promotional war. Actually, no, Roy Welch was dead. The Galento incident happened in 1973, I believe, maybe late 72, early 73. Roy Welch died a couple years later. Jerry split from Nick, Goulas Welch Wrestling Enterprises, a couple years after that. We'll get into it. But toward the end of his life, Roy they said was potentially had Alzheimer's or whatever. And people had convinced him that Jerry was trying to steal the territory, which going back to guys who were in the business in the fucking teens and twenties and thirties, that's what would happen. And he may have believed it and maybe wanted to fucking do something. Who knows what the fuck, but yeah, the, the, Roy was Jerry's benefactor all through the years of that. And then finally, right before he died, it was suspected maybe he was the one put Mario Galento up to hitting a ring on him. But Jerry didn't steal the territory for another four years. <laughs> but he did, he actually didn't steal it if Nick had been smart and realized what was going on and what he had and just made him partner. It would have changed the course of the wrestling business and history, but he didn't. He's tried to screw him, and Jerry said, well, fuck you. Because Nick had never been the one that the boys were mostly loyal to. It had been Roy Welch, even though he was the heel behind the scenes, good cop, bad cop. He was the, the good cop in front of the fucking boys and the bad cop behind it. But... Most of the talent was loyal to Jerry Jarrett because he had made them money. His towns drew better. He paid better. His, you would, you know, you would, the TV was better. Everything was better in the Jarrett end. Even when, when Bobby Shane went to Australia and told Barnes and Dundee, Oh, you got to go to Tennessee. You guys will get over there. He said, but don't go to work for Nick. You're going to work for the little man. And, you know, that was the thing. People came even before. Jerry opened his own company. People came to work for Jerry because, you know, he was getting a a reputation that he could get people over. Well, plus uh, he had the relationships. 
Who had a yes. relationship with Jim Barnett? Jerry Jarrett, not Nick Goulas. Yeah. Well, as a matter of fact, so uh, think about this now. I've just I've just given you from 67 to 72. He becomes a booker. He becomes a referee. He becomes the wrestler. He opens his own fucking towns. He's he's running his own promotion as a satellite of the Goulas Welch office while being a top baby face and booking the biggest town in the territory. And then Barnett comes back from Australia, enticed by the NWA collective to try to win the Atlanta wrestling war against Ann Gunkel. And I was, Watts the booker when Barnett came back or did he bring Watts in first? No, no. Watts was the booker. Watts was already the book. Yeah. Everything happened. Thanksgiving time, 72 by early 73. Watts was already the booker put in there by Eddie Graham. Right. So when they, when they get for a piece of the office back, for a piece of, for 5%, right? 10%, um, I think. Was, was it, it okay? It was 10 because that's what Ole ended up with. Yeah. Anyway, so as Watts is going to be, you know, moved out and back over to Louisiana, Oklahoma, Barnett asked for Jerry Jarrett to come and book Atlanta. Because now what's happening in that year, 1973, not only all those other things I talked about happening, but Jerry as Booker in Memphis has got Jerry Lawler and Jim White as his top heel tag team working a program with, it was Jackie and Roughhouse Fargo, where they had either two or three sellouts of the Memphis Mid-South Coliseum two or three weeks in a row. And there was it was a record crowd. They'd eleven thousand something people one week, and then they beat it by forty people the next week, or whatever the fuck. So Barnett here, there's this kid in fucking Memphis that's booking sellouts in this building, and he's using. And Lawler at the time was twenty three years old, twenty two, not twenty three. What the fuck's going on? So he brings Jarrett to be his booker in Atlanta, and so Jerry still. Relying on Teeny a lot to book to run his towns. He's booking Memphis, but now he's also booking Atlanta, which is was basically in those days he booked the television on TBS, TCG at that time, and the Atlanta Omni cards or the City Auditorium cards, whichever week it was. And, you know, Fred Ward and Columbus and Macon, they did a lot of their own booking, but he's down there for the Omni. He's down there for the Atlanta cards. He's taking some Tennessee talent down. And they're doing business down there to the point. I believe Jerry said he booked the first wrestling sellout in the Omni, which was either maybe Thanksgiving 74, early 75, one of those hot programs with Wrestling 2, who he kind of fostered that gimmick along it would have been 74 that he was talking about so and at, at the same time in 74 as we've talked about memphis the coliseum for 50 shows sold 400,000 wrestling tickets so the guy that was booking that in memphis and louisville wasn't doing bad either the crowds were big in louisville in 73 and 74 he's also booking the omni in atlanta He's also winning find time to work, one of the top baby faces still in the territory here. And it was pretty much Jerry still worked on a limited basis in the 76 and 77. I mean wrestled in the ring and 
he would come back every so often. He did some things in 79 when business was down here or whatever. But by that point, he quit wrestling. He didn't have time for it. And, you know, again, we're just we're just to the mid-70s at this point. He had, like I said, relations with, uh, he had relations. He had a relationship. I don't want to say that that way. <laughs> he had a relationship with Jim Barnett that lasted the rest of their lives at Barnett, you know, and he would stay in contact. And through that, he also got a relationship with Eddie Graham when Jerry finally, and we've covered the whole split with Nick in detail, and it's on the YouTube channel somewhere. But uh, when he finally split with Nick, the NWA fully supported Jerry Jarrett rather than Nick Goulas, who had been, because Roy Welch had not been in the inaugural NWA class in 1948, but he joined in 49. And that had been a source of pride for Nick, even though he was not real popular in the with the rest of the NWA promoters. That he was the NWA guy all those years. It was the logo was all over the TV and the interview desk, and he'd mention it all the time, and then the, the newspaper ads. And as soon as as Jerry announced he was forming his own company, Nick couldn't get any help from anybody but the Sheik. Barnett backed up, Eddie Graham backed up, everybody because they knew what was going to happen. And within six weeks, you know, Nick's out of Memphis, and Jerry's <laughs> drawing. Seven, eight thousand people a week to Cook Convention Center. And within four years, the Sheik's out of the NWA. Well, yeah, and, and pretty much out of business. Yeah, within three years, yeah. Um, and then, you know, so when Nick pulled out, the Coliseum immediately called Jerry and said, okay, you can have all the wrestling dates now because the contract had been in Goulas Welch's name. So his first Coliseum show, April 24th, 1977, the main event, the NWA world title, Harley Race and Rocky Johnson. Southern title, Jerry Lawler against Jack Briscoe. Dusty Rhodes was on the card. Uh, guys in from Knoxville, because when Jerry was split off from Nick, since Roy was dead, Jerry took his son, Buddy Fuller, as a partner and formed the Jarrett Welch Wrestling Organization. Got to keep the name Welch in there. Got to keep the name Welch in there. And the Fullers came over from Knoxville. They were going to start trading talent. Eddie Graham was in the back in the locker room because he came and dusty was on the card it was basically it was like okay this is what we knew was going to happen and we're going to endorse you because you're the future of of the wrestling business in this territory and then later the only reason that jerry ever left the nwa was because he couldn't get the belt for lawler and that was more important so he went to the Vern, and the awa schedule was a little lighter and you know, there you go. Hey, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Do you think getting the belt on your guy should be the sole reason you're in the NWA? Or sh at that time, should have been the sole reason you were in the NWA? Jerry liked the NWA concept. He liked the world champion. And he was loved Luthez as a kid when he would see Luthez come in the, you know, the door of the arena with his expensive suitcase and wearing a suit that looks like the world champion. He loved the idea of the world champion. He didn't necessarily have any loyalty to a specific endorsed world champion. If it could benefit his business, 
he was not a proponent of rah-rah, everybody should stay in the NWA. You know, at some point in those, because he was never going to be the biggest NWA territory, and a lot of people still look down on Tennessee because of Nick and Roy. So, and a lot of time have Nick, but, and also because none of them could ever get into it. So I think it it was, when it became a situation where we have done such incredible business with this guy, Jerry Lawler, for so long, but we can't let the people lose faith and they're going to, it's been over 10 years now, He, you know, when he, and he tried to create the. Remember we talked about the CWA world title with superstar Billy Graham and Billy Robinson, and it it didn't catch on. People didn't buy that as one of the big ones because they didn't see it anywhere else in the magazines and it didn't have the history. But the AWA title, and Bockwinkle was such a fucking champion and such a great worker, that program got the AWA belt over in Memphis probably more than the NWA belt had had been because the NWA champion hadn't been there that often. How much of that was due to Bockwinkle? A lot of it. If it had been any other AWA champion, I don't know if it would have worked as well. No, well, Vern Vern actually worked a match on the debut AWA event in 1978. Lawler and Bockwinkle were on top, and Vern was on the card against Eddie Sullivan, and Vern would not have gotten over. if <laughs> He was a champion in 81, by the way, remember. Uh, he wouldn't have gotten over it. It would. It, it, Bachwinkle, Bachwinkle could do it because he could work any style. But nevertheless, so that was you know that was the idea behind. They had to get Lawler a, a run of some description with the world title, so those people wouldn't lose faith. And the NWA, he they tried it several times. Tried it again in '82 with the the angle with Flair, and they couldn't. He couldn't get it done. But, again, you know, he still, that's the thing is, that's just in the 70s and, and early 80s. When when the Von Erichs were in trouble, when Fritz was in trouble in Dallas in the late 80s, who'd he call? Jerry Jarrett, can you come down, run my business? And... He, and the same thing happened in 82, first of all, remember Bruiser. Bruiser calls, hey, can you send up your talent, run my business? Uh, I got the TV slot still. He just had nobody left. Spike Huber and Steve Regal. It was it, right? And so Jarrett said yes. And then not only was the the second time he went, the the main event of the first tour on Thanksgiving weekend of a brand new fucking group of talent in an almost dead wrestling promotion, so that was a thrill, was Bruiser versus Kamala. Kamala had just started and Bruiser was about finished. And um, and then the, by the second weekend, Bruiser was trying to get by, and he beat Kamala, by the way, and he was trying to get back on the cards regularly and trying to you know, get some of his old cronies and Jared just said, never mind, just take it. Well, then in Dallas, they did go down and, and Jerry curtailed a lot of the losses and had some things moving. And wasn't that the time they put, he let Eric Embry book the thing for a while. And Well, he bought out Fritz, remember, and he was partners with Kevin and Kerry before they sold out finally. Yes, but then he couldn't control the boys. 
And he ended up giving it back. He said, here, you guys run this fucking thing. Every time he'd pull out, everything would go to shit again. What about 83, when Watts' business is down, and he brings in Jarrett and Lawler to look at his talent? I mean, that's a... Yeah. I mean, it may be a little crude what was said, but that's a great example of the mind. Bringing him in, look at my business. I can't figure out what's wrong. What do you see? And he got it right away. Yeah. Where's the blowjobs? And he he thought they wanted for themselves. No, look at your crowd. Because look at your roster. All the baby faces were... I loved Hacksaw Duggan, and he worked in that spot, but not when he was the best-looking fucking man on the roster. Right? The kick-ass baby face was also the youngest, best-looking guy. He had giants and football players and ugly heels and ugly baby faces and older guys and a slower style. And and Jared had and Lawler had both just made a fucking fortune off of rock and roll tag teams and young but good-looking baby faces that are fighting the odds against vicious fucking heels that cheat and lie and steal. And, you know, it, it, it revolutionized that territory because it was such a departure. The same guys in Memphis that were in middle card, me and Bobby Eaton, Dennis Condry, the, the fans were used to, in a new environment, being presented a different way by a guy that learned booking from Jerry Jarrett, Bill Dundee, he gave him the record business year he'd ever fucking had. Because that was the personal issues draw money sign on the office wall was legitimate and we've talked about it with the the southern wrestling discussion we had a week or two ago on one of the shows <sighs> those guys and you can go back to the cal farley's and dutch mantels in amarillo or the fucking roy welch's in you know tennessee in the fucking 40s and the green shadow pat malone the cheating lying underhanded heel that would do something that in the by the 80s would become a wrestling trope, as they say, a foreign object or whatever the fuck, and in the 40s was getting cops hitting the ring in these fucking cow towns and were arresting the heel for doing it because they weren't smart, and they, and they fell into it, right? They got caught up in it. The personal issues and the the baby face has to fucking walk through hell with gasoline britches on to triumph over shit. But you want to be there when he does because you're on the road with him, right? That's the, it's not phony like sports entertainment where everybody is just in a soap opera and just emoting these goddamn long, drawn out, dramatic monologues. And it's not legitimate sporting pro wrestling where everybody's just trying to compete for the title it's it's kind of the the flavor of this that was passed down from all these people is kind of like if your goddamn friends and neighbors around you were all had picked sides and were mad at each other for personal reasons and somebody had pissed on somebody else's front yard or killed somebody else's dog or whatever the fuck and you're watching them argue and fight and you're into it that and that's you know the essence of wrestling and so and again you know that's he jump-started watts's business with just a, the different talent that they had been using already 
He was amazing. You mentioned this yesterday when we talked about it, first heard about it. Jerry was the first promoter of of one of the major territories that was that grew up with television. Everybody else they they had they'd become adults before television became a thing, so they were already kind of involved in wrestling and put the wrestling on television. But since Jerry grew up with TV, he understood it better and the television became the driving force to see the wrestling rather than just airing the wrestling you're already doing. You said it better. Yeah, I mean, there weren't too many people. I mean, if you think about it, all the promoters, at least through the mid-60s, were older guys, former wrestlers in a lot of cases, who were stars from a previous era. So TV comes in, look at the first generation of TV. It wasn't, you know, go watch that Chicago stuff. It's great for in-ring action. There are no promos. There are no angles. The angles are just things that happen in the matches. Yeah. But eventually, television, the television presentation of wrestling, which I actually think to this day, when done right, is still the most effective way to present wrestling, what some may call studio wrestling, what Bill Watts didn't have a studio, was just a way to present wrestling so that people would want to be invested in it. And I think Jerry Jarrett, because he was younger and he grew up with TV, was able to approach that in a different way than a Roy Welcher and Nick Goulas would have. Yeah, and it, well, Roy Welch was born in 1901. He was almost 50 years old before he ever saw a television. But at the same time, the Southern promoters, and you can see as Scott Teal again did a great Knoxville history book, and you can see some of the same things, especially the way they booked the Green Shadow with same finishes, same angles, the same kind of promotion of stipulations from week to week to juice things up. They were doing these things in the arenas in front of the people. They just all of a sudden now had a a way to reach tons more people doing the same thing to get them to come to the arena. And then at the arena, they'd do something else to get them to want to watch TV the next week to see what the match was going to be announced and blah, blah, blah. And it, it fed on itself. But Jerry was, again, great with the way he used the legends and the way he made stars out of young guys you'd never heard of. And he placed more importance in the legends of the territory than, you know, a lot of places did because he knew that these fans had long memories anyway in this territory. And, and especially in, you know, Memphis where wrestling had been so big and popular for so long. So you could, you could use that and you could use that history that people had. And then when, you know, five years after they revealed that Tojo was his mentor, for whatever reason, they turned Tojo heel on Jerry because he was disappointed in him and he slapped him around. And it didn't work. <laughs> Tojo was a baby face about three months later again. But what it did was, was show people that shit would happen. There would be a falling out. They could refer to it again so they could tease that. Later on, oh gosh, you know, Things have happened before. He remembered history between Lance Russell was perfect for that because he had been around to see all of it. So he would recognize the history of the guys or things they'd done. And at the same time, young guys 
you know, he didn't see, you know, laying the trade with us. He didn't see Rick Rude as a green fucking, you know, arm wrestler from Minnesota. He saw him as that guy with the washboard stomach and a good looking fucking grin and mustache and swagger. And I can do something with that guy. And, you know, whether Kamala, we mentioned before, poor old Sugar Bear Harris wasn't getting booked, but Kamala wrestled Hulk Hogan in Madison Square Garden. He he would take young guys that wanted a chance, because that's another way Jerry stayed in business. You were never going to be overpaid, and he was going to pretty much stay in business at first cost and take care of you later on, but... The guys that were figured in made excellent money. When he sat me down at Channel 5, Jerry did, and asked me if I wanted to be a manager, he said, now this it's a hard business. Some people don't make money and don't take care of their money. But Bill here has become a wealthy man, and I've made a fortune. <laughs> okay. But um, he would, where was I going with that? The, oh, the the whole fucking thing was he would make sure that the business stayed in business, but he would give young guys breaks and you could work every night and you could learn how to do this live TV in one take and get over in front of crowds live and what worked and what didn't. And you're doing something different every week and you're in the car with veterans constantly. And that's why so many guys either came here when they got started because it was they went through so much talent with weekly towns that they would, you know, if a guy came in a couple months, he didn't work out, fuck, okay, give him his notice, bring somebody else in. And the thought was when you came in, you would stay as long as you could so you could make some money and learn or whatever, but turnover was high, so so many guys came through and learned shit and or got a gimmick or a piece of advice or made a connection that later on made him fucking money in the wrestling business. Everybody from Hulk Hogan on down. And I'm trying to think, Jesus Christ, if you take into account everybody that Jerry Jarrett booked over the last 50 years, early in their career, it would be easier to list anybody who's been a, a big star until the last 10 or 15 years when it's all been developmental or whatever to think of somebody that that's been a big star that wasn't there than, than it was. And then we get to the nineties when Vince thinks he's going to prison. Who does he call? Try to take care of the business while he's going to be away boarding with the warden, Jerry Jarrett who has told the story that Vince Sr. had talked to Jerry one time and said, my son's going to piss a lot of people off and he's probably going to need you at some point. If you would take care of him, I'd appreciate it. And then Jerry goes up to Connecticut for what, that year, year and a half or what? He started drinking two bottles of wine every night. He said he knew it was time to go home. Everybody from the South hated moving to Connecticut. Everybody from Connecticut loved going to the South. But, uh, and I know that our friend, the artful Dodger had tried to debunk that fact of what was happening 
after the fact because Jerry didn't take Bruce seriously and treated him like the coffee boy. He had respect for Pat Patterson. He didn't take Bruce seriously. And I think it stung and wounded Bruce down to the quick. But Jerry was going to be the guy to because Vince knew that Jerry Jarrett did not want to move to Connecticut and take over his fucking business in a hostile manner. He was at a wrestling mind that wasn't going to steal anything from him because he didn't want it and could be there temporarily to make sure that everything didn't fall into fucking chaos if if Vince was behind fucking bars. And there weren't many people with that level of experience left in the in the business. So and then once that Vince didn't go to prison, Jerry said I'm ready to go back home. And he tried, remember, he also tried to buy Jerry Jarrett offered those fucking idiots at TBS more than Vince paid for WCW. I can't remember what the offer was, but it was more than $4 million and they wouldn't take it and sold it for less to Vince. I people may say, Oh God damn, you know, they're thinking now it's a $6 billion company or that the economics are different in this day and age, but Jerry Jarrett could have put together the financing to buy WCW in 2001. He fucking 1980-something, he was living in a million-dollar house in Hendersonville. I think he could have come up with more than $4 million. Imagine what that might have looked like. I don't remember the timing of it, if that offer was before. It must have been before they found out that there was going to be no more television. On yes, now that, that's when there was a bunch of... Bischoff had an offer out there with his group, yeah, right? There's yeah. a bunch of chaos at the end where, okay, okay, we'll buy it, we'll buy it. Oh, wait, no TV, nobody will buy it. But um, but that led to the start of TNA. Yeah, because they well, and then again, they come up with one investor, and that investor fucking pulls out with no notice. Remember Health South because they got in the news for all kinds of financial improprieties and they had bigger fish to keep out of prison and he finds that they find another investor old dixie's daddy but uh, how many territories have the jarrett family territories or promotions or companies have the jarrett family started most of which have been successful how many satellite territories have they been responsible for at one point or another been asked to come in and straighten out or or help or whatever and we i know the memphis territory folded in 97 and then jerry's involvement has been sporadic well the first couple of years were if that long with tna but still just talking about his full-time run he was a booker on and off, and of course, they would hand it off to Lawler sometimes, and then later on, Bill Dundee, who did a great job. But Jerry was a booker on and off for 30 years, from 67 to 97. He was a not just a main event wrestler, because he could put himself in the main event, but a main event wrestler that drew money for about six or seven years, run there. He ran... Louisville Wrestling Enterprises, some of his own towns, for 27 straight years and ran his own company where he was 
the boss of everything for 20 years. <laughs> During that, he produced not only the Memphis wrestling program that was not only the highest rated wrestling program in the United States, but the highest rated local television program in the United States. But he also, in the days of Goulas and Welch, booked and or appeared on some of their TVs, because we've talked about in Tennessee and Kentucky and Alabama alone, they did five different television programs every week. And he was in charge of some of those. Then you factor in booking in Atlanta, the other companies, uh, TNA starting from scratch, being involved with the W. And the reason why that Jerry Lawler was with the WWE today when he is, is because Jerry Jarrett made that commitment to go help Vince in 1992. And Lawler followed soon after because why wouldn't you want your best talent on national television? I mean, who else has anywhere near this resume? You talked earlier about how they talked to you, him and Bill Dundee, about becoming a manager. When was the actual first conversation or the first time you spoke to Jerry Jarrett? About that topic or, you know, the first time I met him, the first time I spoke to him was, hello, Mr. Jarrett. Uh, no, in general, that was that day. I'm taking, it was Lawler and Flair on, in the Channel 5 studio that day in August 14, 1982. And I had driven all night to be there to take pictures because it was my girlfriend at the time's birthday the day before. And so I hadn't slept. <laughs> and so... As the show is winding up, I'm on my knees behind one of the cameras taking a picture and a tap on my shoulder. I turn around, it's Jerry Jarrett. And I mean, obviously we spoke on a, whenever Jerry would come to Louisville, uh, obviously we would speak. I've taken pictures of him. You know, we've never sat down and had an in-depth conversation because I've, in those days, looked at him like, okay, this is the fucking boss. I'm on a you know, if he needs to hear from me, he will, right? I'm not going to fucking go over to Jerry Jarrett and announce, hey, Jerry, I'm here. Shake my hand. The fuck that started later. But anyway, he taps me on the shoulder. I'm like, oh, shit, did I do something? No, I want to talk to you. And he brought me back in one of the offices. He says, I've been having an idea. Have you ever thought about being a manager? Now I'm thinking, okay, this is sleep deprivation. And, uh, and I was him and him and him and him. He said, the reason I ask, and he told me the old, he said, some of the guys have heard you doing some of your, I would do impersonations like all the guys did then of Jimmy Valiant or Terry Funk or whatever. And I, and, and Teeny liked him, right? She said, oh, do Terry Funk again, whatever. Anyway, so. And, of course, he's told the story since then. He said if I could get as much heat with the fucking people as I got with the boys, he knew he had a moneymaker. But, uh, you Did know, Did you really have heat with the boys? Not really, but it's a nice <laughs> line. It is. It is. I think probably maybe every once in a while uh, if I was in the way somewhere, but nevertheless. Um, but anyway, he said the Gary Hart gimmick, millionaire playboy. And I wasn't going to pull off the playboy part, but, you know, comes from a wealthy family, bought his way into. So then 
He said, go home and ask your mother because she's going to be spoken of in ill repute on television. And if you want to come back wearing a suit next week. And as a Dundee walk, because Dundee was the booker then. And Dundee walks in and, and that's when Jerry's in. And yeah, it's a hard business. Some guys don't make money. Some guys don't save their money. But Bill's a wealthy man and I've made a fortune. Okay, okay I'll buy that. You'd already been to his house by that point, right? Well, yes. <laughs> As a matter of fact, the housewarming, I think, I've, I've told this story a while back, but he had, Teeny invited my mom and I to the housewarming because he had the big housewarming where he had that 18,000 square foot custom built mansion with an indoor ballroom that pool outdoors. It's set on a hundred acres on top of a mountain outside of Hendersonville that he later on subdivided that fucking property and made a fortune with his construction business. He told me he made more money than he ever made in wrestling. And the wrestling money is what bought this son of a bitch. So he has the housewarming and Eddie Graham comes and he's a guest. And, you know, Bobby Bear, the country star, next door neighbor, plays the in a tent in the backyard and there's hundreds of people there. And I came wearing the fucking spiffy goddamn tuxedo to take pictures and everything. It looked like a high school graduation tuxedo, which it was, by the way. And I, and like within a month, he had, I think he got an idea that seeing me dressed up, he's like, this fucking heat getting son of a bitch. You can talk too. <laughs> so, but nevertheless, and that's, you know, that's what, what started that. And he had the, and he said, yeah, so come back next week wearing a fucking suit. Hey, if I can ask you a question, because we've talked today and we've talked many times in the past about various lessons as a booker you could learn from Jerry Jarrett. And like you pointed out, he learned from the best. I mean, he was there with Eddie Graham after he'd already been a booker. In terms of business, what do you think are the important lessons as a businessman for the wrestling business that a promoter today could learn? I mean, one of the big ones you've talked about and guys have complained about over the years was you couldn't make money in Memphis. Because he was going to make sure that the promotion or himself were going to make money as opposed to him not making any money and everyone right. else getting all the money. Right, and and you, and you could – the top guys could make money in Memphis. And as, and we've talked about Lawler made a fucking fortune. Uh, and even the top guys that weren't figured into the office, you know, when business was hot, the fabs were making 1500 bucks a week apiece on guarantee and a couple grand a week apiece on fucking pictures and T-shirts in the 80s. So, you know, you could make money, but it was not one of the higher paying territories. But nevertheless, your question was, what can other promoters? In terms of how you, how you utilize your capital and your money on a show, what do you think people could learn from that? Well, you know, and here's the thing is there are differences in the territory days and now, but there can be some lessons learned. We've talked when Lawler would take over the book. Jerry didn't like to say no to people, and he would end up with 35 guys on the card in Memphis on a Monday night. When Dundee would have the book, he would book it more like Jerry would. If you can't get the fucking people to come to see a card with 16 or 18 guys on it, well, then you've just shit the bed. You know, so, and especially in those days, there were no guarantees per se uh, written contracts or a guarantee per night or whatever promoters would have verbal guarantees with their top guys for a week that they would meet or exceed that. And that was kind of a loose verbal deal. But when you paid guys based on the house, you would 
you know, you would shave the payoff down accordingly, but Jerry wouldn't allow the, and most time, and he'd yank a knot in Lawler's tail, the payroll to get so ridiculous that even if you were giving the guys the $50 minimum, you were paying too much because there was 40 guys on a fucking card. Also, again, a cardinal rule of promoting wrestling is don't imagine that everybody knows who everybody is and everybody's already intending to come. You need to give them a reason to, and you need to make sure they know about it. And you need to make sure that they know who everybody is and why they're mad at the person they're fighting. And not necessarily the Gary Hartline repetition is the key when dealing with goofs, but the reinforcement of who everybody is and what their standing is. And you keep your faith in in your baby faces or heels. In they never there were a lot of turns in Tennessee wrestling because with weekly weekly events you had to keep turning things around, but they wouldn't just turn anybody but Jimmy Valiant. He was the fucking bulletproof guy. He could turn back and forth because people just loved him. But they wouldn't turn guys back and forth until they meant nothing. They just send them out somewhere else and and bring them back again later on fresh. So you know, turning over talent. But uh, again, I said the other day, it's not about giving the fans what they want to see that they come up with. We were talking about Tony Khan. Because they've made a number of their favorites in AEW organically over and they've dropped the ball on it. It's not that you give the fans everything they want to see. When the fans are reacting to somebody, yes, you take that and run with it and give them more reason to be into that that individual. But the bigger art to wrestling is educating the fans to what you want them to want based on what you can provide and the parameters and the limitations you may be working with, if you basically sneak the idea by your programming and your booking of what they want into their head and then give them what they want, because you've already told them what it was, because it's what you can give them. That kind of shit worked for a long time in Tennessee. And that's why, again, a lot of people that didn't watch it regularly grow up with it in the time period concurrently and understand it. They just look at the tape and they go, what the fuck? People took this seriously, but yes, they fucking did because it was all at the root of it. It was all personal people. It wasn't the, the, the things that happened amongst the guys may have gotten fantastical, but it happened for a reason that everybody could understand jealousy, greed, avarice, Pride, lust, shit like that. Do you think too many people see some of the moments of Lawler's, mostly Lawler stuff, like a Dr. Frank thing, and they think that somehow exemplifies an entire generation of Memphis wrestling TV? Yeah, I'm afraid they do. Much as some people just can't get over that I worked with a guy in a Ninja Turtle costume on a spot show in front of 300 people because he was my best friend, and that way we could get to wrestle. And and the kiddies would enjoy it because he was a turtle. See, you started all friends wrestling. Well, there you go. Um, but that that is a point is that a lot of people see the wackier stuff and say, "Oh, that's it was all good." They, but I just tweeted a um a clip that somebody had put together of Lawler and Terry Funk 
1990 when Pettacino was doing the global thing and and they were taping with and that's not when Joe Pettacino thought he had 30 million dollars to form the Global Wrestling Federation he went to Jerry Jarrett and did TV and used Jarrett's talent blah 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 but uh they tweeted like a two-minute clip of Lawler and Funk just beating the shit out of each other. This is when both of them were in their 40s. And it looked better than anything that you see on television today, more aggressive and more violent. And it's just because they knew what the fuck they were doing. And it it, it was it felt more personal. That's the kind of stuff that drew money in the Tennessee territory while, you know, while Lawler was, Lawler was a movie monster fan. Dundee, you couldn't have got Dundee to goddamn book Dr. Frank if you'd have held a gun on him. And Lawler couldn't wait to fucking get the mask out. But Jared kept control of the whole thing for long enough that if anything ever got sideways for too long, he would take control of it. And when Robert Fuller left and went back to Knoxville in, in 79, when that whole thing happened, and he Jarrett was left with Lawler, Dundee, and eight guys that really didn't make a shit. He brings Jackie Fargo back in Rough House, and he shoots the Tupelo concession stand brawl with Wayne Ferris and Larry Latham, and triples the business in three weeks from all of the names that Robert Fuller had, and and uh, Tanaka, and Gorgeous George Jr., and the Mongolian Stomper, and Robert Fuller. And Jimmy Golden, all those guys leave. And three weeks later, they've tripled the fucking business with a bunch of nobodies and Buddy and Ken Wayne. That's, you know, when he had to come in and straighten something out, he'd do it. Jim, if I could ask, do you have any favorite Jerry Jarrett expressions or sayings? Because the one that I always remember, I forget who exactly it was about, but it was you saying or him saying to someone, him saying to you about someone. How about, let me, how about just step out? <laughs> just step away from the story and let me tell it. I came into Memphis TV when I'd just started managing. And Brian Hildebrand, Mark Curtis, was with me. He had come down to take pictures for the magazines because he was a photographer at that point for the magazines. But also, everybody knows we've talked about Brian getting involved with Dom DiNucci's wrestling school early on and et cetera. And he had worked some early independence, but he had just been refereeing for Buddy Fuller, who had opened up some towns in Ohio, Dayton and somewhere else, and was using Jerry's talent and they were business partners. So he's been refereeing. So I think, okay, he's with me. We go into TV and he comes in the back door with me and he goes out to to the studio to, you know, get his camera bag unpacked or whatever. And Jerry Jarrett comes over to, who was that with you? I said, well, that's Brian Hildebrand. He, I said, I, I think I said, oh, don't worry. He's smart to the business. And I was about to explain who he was. And Jerry said, I don't care if he's smart to the business. He's not smart to my business. Yes, sir. <laughs> and we went out the front door, both of us that day. He protected the business because it was his and he had to be there when everybody else was gone. Right. But uh, there were, you know, the personal issues draw money that we said, and he may be smart to the business, but he's not smart to my business. That That's another saying, but it was just Jerry's, his way of 
explaining, and I'm not doing a very good job of it, but his way of explaining or imparting what he wanted you to do, he could see it in his head. I got, I give finishes more like Bill Dundee, because Dundee's more high-strung like I am, and, and Dundee would go through the thing where he'd start acting it out in the locker room, and you'd be blowed up watching him, right? Jerry was laid back and calm, and he talked slow, and he would, he'd have that spit cup, because all the guys in the early 80s, uh, you know, him and Eddie Marlin and Dundee, whoever else, are chewing red man. And he would sit and he when he would give you a finish as the booker. He never told you a wrestling move to do in the finish. That was immaterial. He gave you the story of the finish and who was supposed to do what and what your reaction should be and how to milk thing. He would... It would be descriptive like, and when the baby face turns around and sees that, well, you can't believe it. And the shock is on your face and you let people see you can't believe it and build the anticipation till then you grab that no good manager. Or, and, and like I said, he wouldn't give wrestling moves unless it was a move that needed to be reversed for the finish, something specific. He said, get heat on the guy. And finally, when it's time to go home. Slip on a banana peel, give him his opportunity, set up the hot tag. He was big on hot tags and building the hot tag to the point where it's the most important thing in the world for that baby face to get to that corner and he has to walk through hell. And when you finally set it up and it happens, that's why I'm so bullshit about cold tags. There has to be almost no way for that put upon baby face to get to his corner and make a tag. It's obvious that there's no way he can make it. The heels are in between him and his partner. He's down there up. It would take a miracle. And then the miracle happens. That's why the goddamn tag is hot. But he would give, his finishes were logical. Things would happen based on what was happening around you and what you would do. You were reacting instead of acting. And so he didn't care what wrestling moves the guys used. As long as they got heat and as long as they had a big comeback and a hot tag, those things, he let the wrestlers call the plays, but he gave you the story and the emotion and what the finish was supposed to accomplish so that next week when we come back with the stipulation to prevent that fucking whatever the fuck happened to screw the baby face, the people will understand it. This time's going to be the only reason you beat me last week was because of such and such. You have a soap in my eyes or a foreign object or brass knuckles or the manager interfered or whatever the case may be. Well, this week's stipulation will nullify all of that. And that's why they kept coming back. And it was the same thing that he learned from Roy Welch, which was the same thing that he learned from Cal Farley and Dutch Mantell, which is the same thing that they figured out in fucking West Texas in 1918. Manipulate people's emotions. Milk their reactions. Get somebody that they love sideways with somebody that they can't stand, that they hate, and have those people have a conflict and prolong it as long as you can. And finally, in the end, good, hopefully, most of the time, triumphs and somebody worse than the other bad guy comes in to take his place. That's the element. That's the foundation of wrestling. And that's what they were still doing in 
the Tennessee territories in the 70s and 80s that was the closest thing you could come to to the pioneer days because a guy that was there when all this stuff was invented had been in charge for the previous fucking 50 years. But anyway, having said that, um, like we said, I guess the only other thing to say is he was probably the most important wrestling promoter left alive, not named Vince McMahon in terms of longevity and success and impact he had on a variety of businesses and tons of future wrestling talent. You know, I'm sitting here thinking about it. You're one of the very few people, one of the last people, or just one of the very few in general that could say you as a booker trained or learned, however you want to learn is probably the more appropriate term. Yeah. Jerry Jarrett. He he never sat down and said, here, Jim, I'm going to show you all this, all this shit. Right. What you did was, but you, you were smart. You opened your eyes and ears and paid a lot of attention. But Jerry Jarrett, Bill Watts, Dusty Rhodes. Vince McMahon, you have to put him on that list, too. Yeah. I mean, if we're going to go back a little ways, we could say George Scott at one time, but wouldn't maybe belong on this list. But <laughs> when it comes to booking, what did they all – is there anything they all had in common? Because they all had their differences as bookers. Is there anything they all had in common? Well, a lot of success in their own individual ways. You know, Watts was never going to go for the – the outrageousness of Memphis wrestling because he was more serious minded and his approach worked, especially in his territory because I mean, look at the heat they had. The heels had more heat in Louisiana because of Watts's style of booking than anywhere else, probably in the country with dusty. It was a combination of, cause Watts learned from Eddie Graham so did Dusty. Dusty learned the the big show package. Watts was a hard-nosed football player and a, you know, straight-minded fucking pro-athlete type of guy. Dusty was an entertainer. And he learned the package show and having strong cards up and down the thing from Eddie Graham. But at the same time, you can see that that Dusty also learned the crazy angles, the guys getting their clothes stripped off that they saw in Florida, fucking that he did in Florida, that he learned from Eddie Graham, that they did in Memphis, because they did it. A lot of this stuff is now going back to West Texas because Eddie Graham, one of his first main event spots that we talked about, was working for Dory Funk Sr. in West Texas. Rip Rogers. And as Rip Rogers. And Dory Funk Sr., was brought along and was and Cal Farley was still around when Dory Funk Sr. was the top guy in West Texas. Dutch Mantell, I believe, died right about the time that Funk got there. But you know, you're we're finding a lot of this the most influential people in the business and the the people who most grasped the concept of manipulating emotions in wrestling all kind of came through a similar path and interacted with a lot of the same people at the start. Um, but you had the, the difference. I mean, everybody, all those bookers had their differences. But uh, Jerry Jarrett was, he was more uh, willing to open up to wild shit because, like I said, weekly territory. And also, he was never 
he was never the guy that he wanted to protect the legitimacy of the business in terms of, you know, not wanting people to know that it's a work. But he wasn't one of these people who wanted to shove. And this is where some people have a misconception with me that, oh, he just wants 15 minute headlocks. Jerry Jarrett didn't want to shove athletic wrestling down to people's throats when they didn't want to buy it. He put it on the card like Eddie Graham did so that you would have a baseline. And then when the crazy shit happened, well, those guys are out of control. And usually it's in the main events and all of blah, blah, blah. But he wasn't as hard-nosed as like a Vern Gagne. Oh, God, let's take him in the barn and stretch him for several years. I never thought of it in that way. It's so interesting the way you just put it, as a baseline. Because that's one of the things that feels like wrestling is kind of lost. The idea that there's a baseline and then you go above it in the big moments. Yeah, no, there's nothing now. It's just just uncontrolled chaos for the length of the program, pretty much. Where nobody's in charge of anything and there's no actual baseline here so you can deviate from normal behavior to get a response. Because everything is accepted. You're not surprised at anything anymore. So therefore, you just... You're you're not watching a car crash. You're watching a highlight film of car crashes. So that's, I mean, that's something the old bookers understood. Hot shotting. Do it when it's necessary to get your fucking eyeballs back on your product. But if you go too far, you've killed yourself. And, it's, and if you get in a point where you have to really hot shot, have to, instead of just wanting to do a big show every once in a while, then you probably shit the bed anyway. But certain times it's necessary, like the Tupelo concession stand brawl. Now, if they'd have done that, you know, three weeks in a row, then people would have said, ah, fuck. Because remember, they did it another couple of times, and it didn't work like the first one because people had seen it. And that was once every year, and that was too much. Yeah, and actually twice over the next three years, and it was still too much. But that's, you know, restraint, logic. Protect the business in terms of the integrity of it as far as we don't want people to know how we're doing this, but you've got to have craziness, and the people will accept it if you pick the right talent because they can get it over and make it natural. You brought up that he would be willing to accept some of the crazier things. Andy Kaufman was a pretty crazy idea that was already rejected, and he accepted it. Uh, Because, again, it it was kind of tailor-made. For Memphis wrestling. And, you you know, the thought was, well, let's not turn down a network television star because he might be able to sell us some tickets. But then you also you had Lawler that could. Could speak to those people and make them believe that he was giving you his true emotions on the situation. This guy's making fun of my business. And regardless of what you think of it, I take it seriously and I'm going to make a point of hurting him. And meanwhile, oh, you Kaufman, remember the, the great quote. I love this quote. Do you think you're going to hurt Andy Kaufman? I think I have to hurt Andy Kaufman. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think I have to hurt him. It's you know, so they created a situation where no matter what you thought of wrestling, here's some comedian that's taking it fucking like a joke and all in fun, and he's playing wrestler. And here's the guy that we've seen for the past ten years every Monday night beat everybody in the fucking business. It's now being made to look a fool by this fucking skinny, you know, guy that's knocking us and insulting us. That is perfect 
for Jerry Jarrett's philosophy of everybody can understand that. Everybody, it's not far-fetched. It Everybody could easily identify with it. And that's another thing. Remember, I said the, that was the the thing that I got from the start from Jerry Jarrett talking about interviews, especially for baby faces, because heels can lie and exaggerate and brag and be assholes, but especially for baby faces, but a lot of times for heels. Tell the fans in your interviews as much of the truth as you possibly can, that they know to be true, that are points of whatever that's not in dispute, so that then when you do start working, they won't be able to tell maybe where you left off. Well, wait a minute. He said this and this and this, and I know that's true. Those are facts. And now he's saying, that, don't just start out bullshitting people and say, yeah, I just got back from the moon. And I'm going to kick your ass. No. Everybody knows there's been problems between me and Dundee, Lawler might say. Because even when they, there was natural professional jealousy, and even when they were, you know, with the fans at the McDonald's or the liquor store or whatever afterwards, Dundee for the liquor store, Lawler for the McDonald's, when they were both baby faces, they'd knock each other behind their backs or make little snide remarks or whatever. People knew, right? So then... Whenever it was time to switch one of them, they could just, everybody knows there's been a long history between me and Bill or whatever, and they would buy it. It wasn't hard. It wasn't difficult. Just whoever the fuck you are, keep being that person, and how would you react to shit? But nevertheless, um... Again, that, you know, before all this chaos, like you said, a, a baseline, before all this chaos, these guys had to, whether it be Jerry Jarrett or Eddie Graham or Dusty or whoever the fuck we were talking about, they had to come up with shit every week for TV and every week for shows that kept the fans' attention that the people believed in enough that they would pay to see the resolution of or what was going to happen. And under uh, basically the only parameters is don't let people know that we're fucking lying to them and act like this is all legitimately happening. Otherwise than that, you'd create whatever you wanted. And it worked for fucking a hundred years. You need a baseline with the commentators too. Yes, because if they're having a hernia about everything, uh, you know, a anyway, but that's a topic for another day. But um, but I sure do. You know, me personally, if it hadn't been for if it hadn't been for Jerry's mother, I wouldn't have been able to get anywhere around the wrestling business. And if it hadn't been for Jerry, I, you know, maybe still would be a ringside photographer. Well, I wouldn't because there's no fucking wrestling unless I wanted to travel the goddamn world. So I might be a fucking radio DJ or a newspaper person by now. Uh, if it wasn't for Jerry saying, Hey, you ever thought about being a manager? Well, sure. I've thought about a lot of this shit, but seriously ever? No, but that's the thing. He could see shit. So, you know, I, that whole, that's why I've always tried to work with whatever, you know, Jeff had that was going on to help him in some respect, because if it hadn't been for both Jerry and, and Teeny, I wouldn't have been in the wrestling business at all. 
ever. So I'm I'm sorry that both of them are gone now. It goes to show you, ladies and gentlemen, if you ever hear your boss is having a party, rent a tuxedo. <laughs> show up. And make it powder blue with a bow tie. No, it wasn't, was it? Oh, it was, baby. Oh, I thought it was at least black. It was powder oh, I blue. I saw that. I said, tuxedo? Well, I'm fucking 19 or whatever. I was tuxedo. <laughs> well, that one looks great. They knew I was a gimmick from day one. I just didn't know it. Jim, let's talk about some other things happening in the world of wrestling this past week. And I know this is another one of those weeks where you watched Monday Night Raw. <sighs> well, <laughs> Boy, the depressing things just keep on coming. Um, yes, I watched Raw is Talk again this week, and uh, we'll quickly run through a few things and then spend some time on one or two. But uh, again, I think this is worse than last week. When I'm not, I'm going to try to skip ahead here in my notes in a second because I'm going to spoil something. Uh, bing, bing, bing. I, oh, here's one note. I don't want to see any more of this show. When did okay. you hold on? We have to figure out when you said that. Is that the game? It was. It was right after the top of the ten o'clock hour. Oh, the game's over. All right. Um. So basically, at uh, where is my notes? By the time the main event started, two hours and forty minutes into the program, we were at seventeen minutes of wrestling. I'll skip ahead and let you know that. So the first segment, Becky Lynch was in the ring with Adam Pierce, and Adam Pierce was his name was mentioned. He got a mixed response from the crowd, a few pleasant claps and some some hoots and catcalls. And the, she's doing a promo about Bailey, and then here comes Bailey out wearing a parka. Was she wearing a parka? What was that? Was that a uh, what do they call those sweaters the, the the Malamutes wear up in Alaska? The Malamutes? I don't know. Aren't the Mal the Malamutes are a people that live in the in the cold? Or is that a dog? I can't remember. They're up there in Alaska. It's getting mighty cold in here right now. Maybe they're the the native people of Alaska, the Malamutes. Uh, <laughs> so she comes out wearing this fucking parka. And they both want to be in the women's elimination chamber, and there's a back-and-forth argument, and somehow Bianca comes out, twirling and skipping. And Bianca's thing was she had been listening to Becky and Bailey, and she disagrees. She thinks that they should have to go through her to get to her. Did you hear that? I did hear that, actually. So the deal is that they're fighting over one of them supposed to be in the or wants to be in the elimination chamber and to get a chance to meet Bianca but Bianca thinks that they should fight her to get the chance to be in the elimination chamber to fight her. That is indeed what she said. Yes. Okay. So Adam Pierce made it a triple threat. <laughs> And if Bianca wins, then neither of them get in the elimination chamber. But if Becky or Bailey win, then whoever wins is added to the elimination chamber, I think. So then, if either Becky or Bailey tonight on Raw can beat Bianca or the other, because it's a triple threat, then they will get to get into an elimination chamber match against five other people where the winner of that will get a chance to face Bianca. And who says Tony Khan's not an influential booker? 
You know what? That's what they did. They missed. They they mixed up their their columns. <laughs> columns went out instead That's of down, right. and they got all flummoxed there. At least the promo was only ten minutes. They put up a graphic for that elimination chamber match, and I immediately started thinking, if they want me to watch it, they better add Becky or Bailey to that match because there's no star power other than Rhea. Well, well and, Rhea's and, not even in the elimination chamber. She's in the uh, mixed no, tag. No, she's match. in the mixed tag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is why I'm saying they got to have a women's elimination chamber. So, uh, speaking of Rhea, the Judgment Day was in the back doing a promo, and Damian Priest says he's going to win the elimination chamber. I think he's going to beat up Piper Niven and fucking Liv Morgan in the elimination. Oh, hey, there's a men's elimination chamber too. It's so confusing. But mommy is still traveling the world. She's not there. And tonight they're going to wrestle the Street Profits. And that son of a bitch is exactly what happened. After the break, there we go, Judgment Day versus Street Profits. Do they not do this every week? Yes, they do it every week. Even when it's different people, it feels like they're doing the same thing every week. So the bell rang 20 minutes into the show for the first match. And they went under two minutes, and we went to a break. And they came back, and we went three more minutes, and Finn Balor won with a foot stomp on old Daryl Dawkins. And then suddenly, boom, they start getting heat on the baby faces, even though they just won. And then here comes Edge and Beth. And they instantly, the energy picked up. It was the best 60 seconds of the show so far coming up because they get into big schmas. Edge is fucking throwing punches. Beth gets a hold of Dominic. And then here comes Mommy, Rhea Ripley, from behind into the ring, not supposed to be anywhere in the building, and gives Beth the old pump handle. And Edge comes back in to save her, and they bail out the heels. That was the best 60 seconds so far. What'd you think? I wanted to see her beat up Dominic. I wanted to see what was going to happen there. Well, see, but we didn't get it yet. We still got to wait for it. Do you think we're going to get Beth beating up Dominic in that match? I think we almost have to, don't we? Sound like Waller. I think we almost have to. Because why else would the world still go round? So it, 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 that'll be interesting then at, at uh, the Elimination Chamber. The mixed tag. I'm looking forward to that. We'll see what happens. And then how long has it been, Brian, since we've had a big-time contract signing on WWE television? Weeks. No, actually, no, it hadn't. It has only been a week. Has it been a week? What was the it's last one? It's been a week since the last week. Remember when Brock fucking signed the contract? Oh, that's it, right. Yeah. Yeah. Before that, it had been at least two weeks before that. Brock and Lashley. They're going to try it again with Adam Pierce with another contract signing. And, of course, they show the angle last week, and Brock makes his entrance. And here is why, again, why Brock Lesnar is over, because he's he always seems out of control, even when you know he's in control. He's a beast that won't obey or that might go into business for himself or who knows what the fuck he's going to do, and he's just a badass, right? And he, one that just a little thing he doesn't go in and pick one of those big overstuffed chairs up for the contract signing and pick it up over his head and make a big show hulk smash and throw it out 
he just grabs the fucking thing and flings it out like it's a goddamn six-ounce plastic chair and lets it go fly into ringside. And people, oh, shit. He, he fills up his fucking space when he's in the ring, when he's on camera, when he's on television. He takes control of the situation. That's why Brock Lesnar is over. And he calls out Lashley. He's, I've already signed a contract last week. Get your ass out here. And then they play Lashley's music, and a dozen security members come out and line the aisle like the honor guard or the fucking the 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 guards over there at Buckingham Palace when they're they're doing the march out and the changing of the guard with the fluffy fucking possum hats on or whatever. So it's obviously gimmick security, and I don't know why they can't make them look a little more legitimate, but nevertheless. Lashley sets up, or they have set up, a table and chairs at, in the entranceway, and then here comes Lashley out in a suit, and he's now he's a full heel. And again, I guess they just decided, well, this wasn't working, so we'll just, in the course of two or three weeks, Bobby will just become a prick again. So he's doing the heel promo. Every time I've faced you, I've beaten or eliminated you. You know, he's wearing a suit where Brock's out there looking like the farmer. He's got the security in front of him. He's got his own special table. And then he says he had everybody look at the contract. My lawyer, my manager, my handler, my trainer, my kids. And I don't know if I'm going to sign it or not. And were the fans chanting Bobby's gay? I don't think so, but what, I don't know. There, there was a chant that came up, and I'm trying to, again, I couldn't hear it well, but the people were chanting, and it sounded like Bobby's gay. It would pertain to nothing that had been said. I don't know. But anyway, they're already on him. Point is, they've taken Brock's side. They're already on Lashley, the way he's acting and the heelishness, so this is working. And thankfully, I think they may save Bobby, switching him back heel. And Brock says, well, I'll just come down there and beat your ass and make you sign the contract. And Bobby says, you don't have the balls. And here goes Brock, and he dumps several of the security guards, and the rest of them just said, fuck it, and didn't make a move. And he charges Lashley, and Lashley backdrops him right on the fucking floor, full backdrop, and then dropped down and hit him with the spear this time Brock goes down and is selling so now we get a little tit for the tat poor Bobby's been a floor mat here past few times but now boom and uh, he signs the contract and drops it on Brock so nice little segment there for elimination chamber Bobby didn't have to talk too long got a little action this wasn't the worst thing I've ever seen what'd you think wasn't the worst thing. I was kind of hoping MVP was going to come out with Lashley. So I was a little disappointed that he didn't. It's early. It's early yet. I know. Otherwise, I can't complain too much. Otherwise, can't complain. This is one of the better things on the show. I can't complain about it. Yeah. And, and folks, it's, it's headed downhill from here. The next match on the wrestling program was Piper Niven versus Mia Yim. And the bell rang. Let's see. For the second match of the night 50 minutes into the show <laughs> and in under two minutes uh piper niven hit the black hole slam on mia yim one two three i guess well 
when Abyss did it, it was the black hole slam. Is that misogynistic to call it a black hole slam when Piper Nivet is doing it, or am I opening myself up to it's the name of the move? They should give it to Nia Jax. She can call it the My Hole Slam. Well, there you go. So we have had a uh, the first match we saw for about four minutes, and the second match we saw under two minutes, but now we're at the top of the nine o'clock hour. And remember, that's a place where we got to get some good programming in, right? You know, we got to have a star in the ring or a star on camera. We've talked about that, these top of the hours. So they come to the top of the nine o'clock hour, and they're in the back with Baron Von Corbin. And I'm just ready to, my God, they fucked up. They're running behind or the timing is off or whatever. It's nine o'clock. And just as I say that, the girl interview had, uh, interviewer had asked him a question about JBL firing him, and he started to open his mouth, and she said, wait a minute, something important is happening in the arena. <laughs> <laughs> important. Important. And they go to, and there's Sami Zayn in the ring with in a hoodie with a microphone. And then right at the top of nine o'clock. I'm okay, they meant to do this, but fucking Corbin. Jesus Christ, man. Just pack your bags and walk on out the door. Just turn around now. You're not welcome anymore. Ah, uh, so the people were on their feet for Sami Zayn. And they're really, they're excited. And he announces that he needs to talk to Cody Rhodes and boom, the people pop. And he said, please indulge me and come out. Brian, what was it I said about a week or so ago that between now and WrestleMania, Cody Rhodes and Sami Zayn, as far as the people are concerned, need to be the best of friends and supporting one another and pulling for one another. And son of a gun, wouldn't you know who won that pony? They play the Cody music and the fans pop for him. There wasn't like booze because, oh gosh, it's him and Sammy. They did the whoa for his entrance. Everybody's got a whoa in their music now. And the fans chanted Cody. Both of these guys are baby faces. And the story was that I'm not, they did it again. This was the segment. On Raw, if you needed to see anything, you needed to see this. Everything else, leave a bad taste in your mouth. But this was tremendous. And Sami Zayn's story was that he's heard Cody say that it's looking more and more like he's going to face Sami Zayn at WrestleMania instead of Roman Reigns. And Sami wanted to know, did he believe that? And Cody said he did mean it, that Sammy could be and most likely will be his opponent at WrestleMania. And the fans are saying, this is awesome. This is awesome. And then Cody starts giving him the talk. Respectfully, does it matter what I believe? Do you believe that you can beat him? And Sammy's like, well, do you want the truth? And then now the fans are singing the ole, 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 ole. That's a deep cut. He hadn't been Generico in 10 years now or whatever. They were in New York. Well, there you go. And Sammy said, the truth is, I don't know. And again, this is like a Jerry Jarrett angle because it's wrestling. It and, and with guys that can talk and pull it off. Because he's saying what, you know, you would be thinking. I don't know. I've seen Roman up close and the, the group, they always find a way. 
and he's as good as he says he is. He's in God mode. And I've been watching guys bigger and stronger than me going down. And Sammy was great here. He's doubting his chances. And and he says, I believe I'm capable of beating him. I believe I'm capable of becoming champion. I'm worthy of it. Yes, I believe that. But will I? I don't know. And then now Cody is put in a position of being big brother. This is brilliant. He's giving him a pep talk. Everybody here, all the fans, know that you can. Montreal knows you can. There's dissension in the bloodline because of you. Cracks in the armor because of you. And then Cody looks at him and says, I intend to finish my story. You need to finish yours. I don't want to see you on Raw next Monday. I'd rather see you at WrestleMania. Again, they're friends now. There's not going to be a backlash. Because they obviously have realized what was going to happen, and they're working this to the point where whatever happens, it seems like the people are going to be in support of Cody supporting Sammy, Sammy supporting Cody, Cody and Sammy supporting each other. And I bet you the first one there to shake Cody Rhodes' hand will be Sammy Zayn. And that's the way you do it. Uh-huh. <laughs> Two weeks in a row. Two weeks in a row, they used Cody in the perfect way. They didn't use him too much. Unfortunately, the rest of the show suffers because this is the one segment that's good, and the ratings are now bearing that out, too, that more people want to see this kind of stuff. You know, it's weird because Cody, in a lot of ways, is so similar to Cody in AEW, and it didn't work. And so yeah. much of it felt forced. Nothing right now feels forced. And, you know, uh, and I'm sure a lot of the creative team is going to, oh, the, the best ratings of the show was for a promo. So let's do more promo. There's the problem. The whole show is a promo now. It's the promo with the people that can talk, that the people are interested in hearing talk, not just because it's a promo. And they have, I mean, the matches could not even be any, possibly any less important. And there's where you get in trouble because you can't have guys talking for three hours, even though they do already. And it, the problem is they've got 20% of the amount of people watching this they did 15 years ago when everybody wasn't talking all the fucking time. And I'm a fucking manager. If it wasn't for promos, I'd have been out of business. But you can't do it for fucking two hours and 40 minutes out of a three-hour program. Anyway. 20 minutes after Baron Von Corbin was last addressed, <laughs> they go back to him in the back, and his story is that I'm better off without JBL holding me down and giving me bad advice. And he's pissed off at Sami Zayn for interrupting him and this whole thing with Cody, and he starts knocking Cody, and they're behind Corbin. Cody comes through the curtain like he's just done his promo. And he starts hearing this where Corbin's knocking him and finally saying, I didn't like Dusty either. And Cody blows into him and fucking tackles him. And boom, 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 they fight out into the arena. And Cody's still in his suit and he's stripping off pieces as we go. And they go to the ring and the bell rings and they have wildness for, what, a minute and a half or whatever around ringside. Fought on the announce desk. Cody hits the crossroads. Boom, one, two, three. 
And this was a great bit, and it was different, and it woke people up and got their attention, and the guy's fighting in a fucking suit. And it needed to be two minutes or less because of the presentation of it. And this was at least a little different and, and again, something else for Cody to do. And it was impromptu and looked impromptu down to the point where Cody, as he goes by, tells the referee, get your ass out there. We're going to have a fucking match. You know, but at the same time, we're now, Jesus Christ, are we at 930? And we've had a good promo segment and 60 seconds of nice action with Edge and Beth and this two minutes in an hour and a half. What'd you think there? I mean, back to the Cody and Sammy thing, I really love that. And I think they've done a really good job of building up anticipation. What could happen this weekend in Montreal? The thing with Corbin, I thought it was kind of funny. They returned to him after cutting him off earlier, which was just perfect the way it was done. What do you think he's done? (laughs) I mean, just... For going from, do you think they just got mad? Well, the thing with JBL ain't working. Fuck, he's still the shits, whatever. So let's just humiliate him until he, you know, fucking sticks his head in the sand and leaves in disgrace. I really don't know. You know, he said something, I think in this promo here that someone on uh, Twitter posted, you know, it's actually true. He was the last guy to beat Roman Reigns in 2019. Boy, it says more about his career than it does Romans, doesn't it? Not to pick on Baron Corbin, because I actually think at times he, when it wasn't too silly or anything, he was pretty good in the role. You, of like the, you, the you liked the, was it the homeless bum homeless, you liked? Yeah. Or, and then when, when, he, when he got one money in Las Vegas, it killed the whole it thing. It killed it. He was a fantastic homeless man. And then once he got Madcap Moss, it killed off everything he had. But using him as an example, and knowing you're WWE and you have so many people on TV, off TV, and NXT, and just signed. Why are some of these guys still on TV if... Like, I don't think anyone's like, oh, Baron Corbin's on, I gotta see that. Like, it's just filler. There are certain people that are just filler on that show because they've been there too long and used in a certain way. I just think it kind of drives off... It drives off anyone who's watched that show in the last few years and they see these people. They have a hundred and something people under contract, as we counted one time, and any of 60 of them could do what the fuck was just done without, but I, I don't know. Like, it's okay not to have a comedy jerk-off character on the roster. Like, they always feel like, it always seems like they need that guy on that show for some reason. But uh, but now, what do you mean that guy? How about those guys? How many comedy fucking jerk-offs do we... We're about to get to more comedy jerk-offs. The whole roster is comedy jerk-offs. That's what's the matter with the program. Cody Rhodes, what are your thoughts on how he's been used so far? Brilliant. This is perfect. Again, he's... They have, the fans have organically got behind Sami Zayn, that organically, that, that word that's being used so much lately. And they were in danger of another, it was Daniel, Brian Danielson and Roman Reigns several years ago, right? That the people wanted Danielson and the office wanted Roman and there was issues. 
Well, now the people are behind both of the top baby faces that are both working in their own way, independent of each other, and now together to bring an end to the reign of terror of the longest-running champion and the blah, 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 and the bloodline. This is perfect. And the fans are not booing either Cody or Sammy. Just to play fantasy booker, since the pay-per-view, have we heard or seen anything from, about, say, Steen, from Kevin Owens? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, it's Montreal. He's got to play a part in it somehow, either helping Sammy or suddenly turning on Sammy. Oh, if he's not booked on the show, he'll hit the ring on as a shoot to be on the show <laughs> with Montreal, Steen. So, yeah. but And see, that's again. Then you've got some intrigue. If they have uh, Zane and, and Owens against the Usos, but the relationship between... Sammy and, and Jay now. So there's all kinds. It's, it's very interesting. Well, the other thing is. For once. The other thing is, you know, those two want a WrestleMania match at some point. What if Owens turns on Sammy <laughs> in Montreal, in their hometown? I don't know. It's an interesting, uh, interesting what if. I don't know about that. Because I, I don't, don't think, think they're, they're going to take it. Owens in the bloodline. I don't think that Heyman can afford the sushi and steak. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so the next match was Carmella, Nikki, and Oscar against Raquel and Liv and Natalia. And the bell rang an hour and a half into the show, and we've had less than 10 minutes of action in three matches, one of them unscheduled. And in this match, they go two minutes and went to the break. And then they came back, and in under two minutes, Oscar's team won. So now we're at four matches, one unscheduled, and we're still under fucking around about 14 minutes. And then they did some comedy in the back with Otis. I put comedy in quotation marks. Otis and Shoosh Boy and the models and Maxine Dupree. It was, there was Mansoir and Monsway. And I thought everybody involved in this except the girl should have quit on the spot when asked to do this just out of pride, if nothing else. The girl shouldn't have a job to begin with, so what the fuck? Um, she can do anything. It's just... And then they expect people not to change the channel when Gable and Otis stumble out, when they present Otis as this blithering dipshit and Gable as shush boy. And they're interacting with them. I get they couldn't. I know Vince came back, but would he notice if they just took the models off television now that, you know, L.A. Knight's not a part of it? Does anybody give a shit about the rest of them? No. So then Bronson Reed versus Muhammad Ali. Mustafa Ali or Mustafa Ali is how they pronounce it. Well, he must have pissed somebody off because they were pushing him for a while and now they just fucking squashed him in less than three minutes uh the bell rang at 9 48 p.m eastern we heard about 13 minutes of wrestling over four matches again this should have been a squash match i love bronson reed that splash off the top rope is badass but a pattern is developing here entrances take forever interviews take forever packages take forever the matches, let's get this over with as quickly as possible. You know, one of the problems I have watching this and this show and after that Cody segment, the show kind of felt like it was over, uh, whether you want to believe that or not. 
after that Cody segment, it felt like it was over. Yeah. It felt like time for bed. Now, I was getting very sleepy is what I was doing. I was I was starting to nod off into, into blissful dreamland, into somnambulism. And you know why I was doing that, don't you, Brian? No. Because of those no-good, sorry son-of-a-guns over at Helix Sleep. No, they're good people. Don't say that. No, they're t- they make such great mattresses, you can't stay awake on these things. Well, that's true. That's the problem. Is As a matter of fact, I am now sleeping between 16 and 18 hours every day. Simply because once you put, I don't care if you sit down on it, you put your butt on it, you're going to sleep. You're going to be sleeping sitting up. If you lay down on it, you're going to be sleeping. If you lay face down, you're going to go to sleep on it. You can't get enough air because you go to sleep so quickly. They should have a warning label on these Helix mattresses. No matter what kind of position, let's say you get suplexed. Let's say you get press slammed. Let's say you get blue thunder bombed onto this bed. It doesn't matter what position you land on this mattress. You're going to go right to sleep because that's how comfortable those people at helixsleep.com make these mattresses and they are, they're killing my life. I can't get out of bed. Good heavens. And it's also, it's very detrimental. Let's say you want to do something else in bed. Let's say you want to eat in bed. Let's say you want to have a little nookie. You can't stay awake. So basically, that's why you need a Helix Sleep mattress in your home, in your bedroom or rec room or kitchen or wherever you do your sleeping. Do, do you sleep in the kitchen ever, Brian? I don't hear. I used to uh, in an old apartment of mine years ago. Ain't Lola and Uncle Tommy used to when they lived on 13th Street up in Covington. They'd wheel the, they gave Grandpa John the, the nice bed and they'd wheel the the uh, the bed with wheels in it into the kitchen at night. But nevertheless, I digress because that's before they made the Helix sleep mattresses. Ain't Lola and Uncle Tommy would both still be here if they'd been able to sleep on a Helix sleep mattress. Now, what makes these things so special, you might ask? Well, I'll tell you. What they do is they make different kinds of mattresses for different kinds of people. They got mattresses for big and tall sleepers, a mattress made just for kids, a collection of luxury models. Stuff that cools you down if you sleep hot. And the way you determine which mattress you'd like to have, all you got to do, go to Helix, that's H-E-L-I-X, helixsleep.com, and take their quiz. It takes about two minutes, just about the same length of time as a WWE professional wrestling match. (laughs) And in that two minutes of time, then you will tell them whether you like to sleep on your side or on your back or on your head or with your nose stuck up somebody's ass, whatever the case may be, however you like to sleep. Then they're going to pick the model that is most responsive to you. And they will tell you which one you'll like and you will order it. And if you don't like it, well, besides the fact that they've got the 10 or 15 year warranty, depending on the model. So this thing's covered. I mean, holy mackerel, many of us won't be alive. The warranty will still be available on this on these mattresses. But also, you get 100 nights risk-free. And if you don't like it in that point in time, then they will come to your house and they will actually set fire to it and get rid of it right in your No, bedroom. they will not set, no, set fire to anything. They will not do that. They will They'll take it. take it out in the backyard and set fire to it. They will take it away in their car or their truck or whatever. They have a van potentially. A conveyance of some description. And it will be gone and 
No question. Because well, you you, to, you told me that they don't resell the ones that they That's confiscate right. from people, so I assume they just set fire to them and burned them so they wouldn't make that mistake. I don't think. But they probably do that at, uh, over at the plant, not right at, in your home. They're, they don't do that at the plant or anywhere else, and they certainly don't do anything like that. There will be no fires started at your home unless it's you who starts it. Well, now they support military and first responders. That includes fire departments, so they've got one standing by. They also support teachers and students. They get a special discount, all of those people on the site. And they own their own manufacturing facility. So each and every Helix mattress made in the USA by a team of skilled craftsmen that have come from somewhere in the United States and have their papers. You should never have to compromise on comfort or on American-made mattresses. None of this stuff's going to come from Brazil. And they've got over 12,000 five-star reviews. And none of those came from Brazil either because they don't want to deal with Brazil. They're coming to fucking Des Moines and Cleveland. And right now, folks, all you got to do, what what do you go? They've changed this. I'll tell you what you have to do and what they're going to do for you. They are no longer. They are no longer offering a set amount off all mattress orders. They are offering a percentage, a bigger piece of the pie. You're going to get a piece of the action, baby. Helix is offering up to 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. If you go to helixsleep.com slash JCE, that's 20% off all, up to 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows at helixsleep.com slash JCE. Their best offer yet. It won't last long. Up, oh, it's over. No, it's not. You can still get in right now if you hurry with Helix. Better sleep starts right now. Well, wake up now. We don't have time to, to sleep right now. We still have no. more raw to put you to sleep. Oh, God. Well, wake up and take your sleeping pill. Here's raw. Okay. Um... At the 10 o'clock hour, remember I said they got to have the star power right at the top of the hour. Do you notice their 10 o'clock star power? I forget who it was. Yeah, exactly. The Miz in the ring with Miz TV. You need a telescope to see this star. And again, another talk show on the show filled with talk. And he introduces his guest, Seth Franklin Rollins. Now, remember, they were thick as thieves here not long ago, but now that Seth is a babyface, for whatever reason, I guess they just I think they just switch guys when they run out of ideas for him the other way. So Seth comes in, and they're adversarial, him and Miz. And, of course, by the time they start talking, because Seth has to lead the fans in the, oh, 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 is it, oh, 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 oh. OEO. What is, I can't get the, how many OEOs are there? There are no OEOs, but it's something similar. And again, I've said it before, people like that kind of stuff. Wrestling fans like that stuff because when he comes out, he gets a good pop and they start singing along with the song, but they're silent when he's talking. <laughs> they like the song. They like wrestling fans like reacting to entrance music now more than ever before. And he's got a song. He's got to sing and he's going to sing it. Um, so they all you a while need, and, oh, you want to be a wrestling star? You just got to come out there and just get someone, oh, just something like that over and over so people in the arena can do it with them. Because Cody's got the, oh, oh, and he's, Seth has the, oh, oh, oh. Becky, Becky also and, has, oh, 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 
And then Generico had the ole, 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 ole. And then Nia Jackson got, oh, my hole. All right, well, and Miz even actually said, all right, let's get to the point. I only have 10 minutes here. And I'm like, Jesus. So now we know we got 10 minutes of this. And Seth Franklin Rollins was wearing inflatable red balloon boots. I don't know why. I don't. It's a stupid thing that, I hate to put it this way, but it's the only way to put it. Among certain people is fashionable right now. And at least it's trendy and something people are talking about because the other day during a Nick game, the music producer Duplo or Diplo. Dup- Duplo? What's his name? Diplo or Duplo? I tell you, it's your story. And I I'm... never listen to his shit. But either way, this idiot was sitting fucking courtside wearing those giant red boots. He looked ridiculous. And everyone started making fun of him. Well, these two look pretty fucking ridiculous. And Seth had balloon boots on. And they argued for about 10 minutes. Miz is point was that Seth will never main event WrestleMania like he did. And Seth got, took exception to that and started taking off his dressing for pleasure outfit. Looked like he was on the board of directors of a massage parlor. And he punches Miz. And then suddenly Theory appears and pulls Seth out to the floor and Seth beats him up. But then Miz waylaid Seth and I swear to God, Seth super kicked Miz with the inflatable boots and Miz sold it like he was knocked out. And then he gave him a curb stomp with balloons on his fucking feet. And he sold that. And it it looks like a bunch of kids having a birthday party in a bouncy house at this point. And then Theory comes back in the ring and gives Seth his finish. And that's where I wrote, I don't want to see any more of this show. Hey, Jim, I have an article here from the Wall Street Journal, February 13th, 2023. Jacob Gallagher, the author. By turning wearers into cartoons, these big red boots and their makers have the last laugh. They are taller than a two-liter bottle of Coke. And the shade of, <laughs> and the shade of an overripe tomato. Collectively, they weigh about as much as a newborn, a massive 3.5 pounds each. And they are easily the most attention-hogging thing I'd ever put on my size 11 feet. 3.5 pounds each. What do you think of that? They look like, they seriously look like balloons. So, uh, but again, three pounds is, what's that? Three boxing gloves. Uh, if they, if they use the 16 ounce fucking gloves. Uh, what do you think of Rollins no. right now? Of Seth Fran Drescher I don't, I don't, Rollins? I don't, th- I don't think of Seth. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what the... I don't know what any of this is. The weird voices and the cackling and the clothes and the back and forth. Is he a heel? Is he a baby face? Is he... I don't know what it's the It's a fuck. guy trying really hard to be interesting and he's not. And you know, the sad thing is, I think if he was just... If it was just simpler, everything would work better with him because there are times he's acting like the usual jerk. And then all of a sudden something happens and he gets serious. And he has a great serious face. Yeah. But then he goes back to the silliness. I just don't think this does anything that people like singing to his music, but do they want to see him on that show? Otherwise, I don't know. You can, you right can be a, a, a guy with a good physique and long hair and flashy clothes and a snappy dresser and 
and you know cut a promo and not just go so fucking it's like what in the world is going on they want everything over the top so far that it comes around the other side anyway and now by the way they actually had because i know he didn't go into business for himself and do this on his own miz gets curb stomp with the balloon boots and lays there in the break selling in the ring while they changed the mat around him and the whole night, and there was an interview in the back where Booger and Ezekiel were in the back giving each other backhanded compliments. Apparently now Ezekiel's a fucking heel. And then they come back and the match is supposed to be Booger against the Miz. And I'm a fucking seriously, again, <laughs> we are... We ring the bell at 10.15 Eastern Time, two hours and 15 minutes into the program. We've had four matches with 16 minutes of wrestling, and Miz is there saying, no way we're having a match right now. I've just been beaten up and assaulted. And then they ring the bell, and Booger gives him a suplex, picks him up like a barbell and curls him 10 times, presses him, slams him, and beats him one, two, three in less than a minute. And I'm not arguing with the Miz doing a job. I think he should do a bunch of them on the way out. But again, let's get this match out of the way. We're stuck where we've we got to get to a new entrance. Get the match out of the way. I was kind of done with the show by this point. I kept watching. Yeah. But I was tired. Nothing was happening. The stars were already gone other than the main event. You know you weren't going to see Cody again. I was done. Well, and speaking of being done, the main event on this program, the triple threat match that was made oh so many hours ago, Bianca versus Becky versus Bailey. The entrances started at 1034. They went to break at 1037, and they come back at 1040. The match has already started. A three-hour show, and one match is going to be longer than three minutes, and it's the fucking girls' match. No wonder nobody watches wrestling to see a fight anymore. They don't have any. It's a fucking rib. So now, you know, basically, that was, and I don't remember or care who won this thing, because I've watched three hours to see anything remotely fucking exciting or money drawn besides the one promo and they get to the main event match when they haven't had a real match on the whole show and it's fucking girls in a fucking triple threat yeah who's that hey i don't know i'll see here in a second i don't know I don't know who it is. I'm afraid to answer it and just cuss them blindly because it might be somebody that might be paying me money soon. Anyway, that was raw. That was raw. What was it? That raw was rolls raw. on. Well, Jim, that was indeed raw, but let's talk about some other news in and around the World Wrestling Federation, as it was once called. This email sent to cornydrivethrough at gmail.com from Scott in Florida. I came across a quote from a recent Cody Rhodes interview. I'm attaching the quote, and here it is. If I'm Roman Reigns, I'm not necessarily scared of Brandy Rhodes. If I'm Mr. Heyman, I would be scared of what could happen. 
<laughs> She's really enjoying watching this. My whole family, not that they've come out of the woodwork. They've always been big supporters. But for Mania, because I've never been in this situation before, I've gotten everything really organized in advance. So going back to this question in the email, should Brandy come out and joust with Heyman just like the good old days? I think she's got to come out and tackle him. I don't, I don't want to see a verbal because it, Brandy's face to face or confrontation or whatever with Jane Cargill was classic because it was so bad. I don't think we need anything at WrestleMania that, uh, approaches that. And I, and Heyman for his part could verbally demolish Brandy, but I think if Brandy comes out and just fucking tackles Heyman and starts wailing on his bald head, that would probably blow the roof off the stadium. That's what I think. If you're going to use Brandy, do you use her at Mania or do you use her in one of the things building up to Mania? Well, the, then the, the building up to Mania, I'm afraid the a tendency or the inclination might be to try to use her to get some kind of heat. And I don't think, I think it would backfire. The people would cheer if Roman reigns later out. But, uh, if she got on Heyman and we had a good old fashioned wife manager cat fight, I think that would be entertaining as shit. Otherwise, maybe she should just stay in the back with, uh, Pharaoh and keep an eye on the leash. Jim, our next question sent to cornydrivethru at gmail.com from Andrew M. Big fan and longtime listener, wanted to get your take on Jey Uso, a.k.a. the unsung hero of the bloodline. I feel like ever since Jey had his initial program with Reigns in 2020, he has consistently improved and also proved how good he could be as a singles superstar. Furthermore, I also believe Jimmy has all the tools to become a successful single star as well, if given the opportunity to show it. I feel the summation of this bloodline odyssey should ultimately give way to an Uso split, resulting in both guys becoming solo acts. <sighs> What's your take on the Usos becoming singles competitors at some point this year? Would you think it could be a successful direction for WWE to go in with these two competitors? And by the way, was that his English major thesis of uh, constructing that question? This guy with the, all, all the big words. Um, we talked about this when we were talking about directions they could go with the bloodline. Yeah, you can split tag team partners up and then they can be singles and go. But when you've got guys that are pretty much twins, I mean, they're twins and one has some coloring in his hair to differentiate from the other one. That's tough because then, and especially the, the similar names, you're creating, I can see Vince McMahon, confusion in the marketplace, pal. That's real hard when you've got two twin brothers, similar names, you're trying to make them singles, especially if one might be a heel, one might be a baby face in the same place. It's difficult because a lot of these guys don't stand out as it is. Um. But you could see what he's saying about Jey Uso specifically and his performance. Again, since that program with Roman, not to put Jimmy down, but Jay kind of right. has been the standout performer. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's 
that's what I'm saying. Basically, is it's hard to have two guys that look that's the same, have similar names, etc. You know, if that happens, then one of the Usos would probably be the what do they call it these days? The Marty Jannetty of the team. And so it wouldn't be good for one of them, even if it was good for the other one. So I'm not, I'm not saying that one or the other couldn't be a single. I'm saying that both of them probably can't be in the same fucking place. So <laughs> if you, if you like the Usos and you want to see them be singles, then you're about to lose one of the Usos. If Roman loses the belt at Mania, the belts at Mania. If Roman loses whatever he has at Mania, and he's no longer champion, can you see the bloodline existing without Roman? Well, then you've just you've got Jay, Jimmy, and Solo. Paulie is not going to be a constant or even a habitual presence without Roman involved, because that's where the money is. So without Roman, then it's going to be hard. Then you've got a tag team and you got the Samoan enforcer, but there's no, as, as Flair would say, there's no straw that stirs the drink. So that would be tough too, to have a bloodline group, unless another big, and who would that be? Another big name came in that was part of the bloodline. If you can get around matches and Roman doesn't wrestle that often and he doesn't even appear on every SmackDown at this point, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I was going to say, what about the rock? But that would, oh, yeah. <laughs> that would make him a heel. That's the only reason I don't think he could do it is it would make yeah. him a heel probably. Well, plus they can't pin him down to just show up for the biggest show of the year. Although they just announced his movies taking a six week break. Which is could interesting it, timing. Could it be Vince cashed in some more stock? Hey, Rock, here's an extra million. At what point do you stop doing that if you've already sold out Mania? You can never sell out Mania now, though. That's the thing. It, on Peacock, you can't ever sell it out. You can't. What, the pay per view is sold out. You can't order the pay per view now. No what? No more are available. Peacock, the free telecast. It's blacked out now. You can't ever sell it out anymore. So if they get The Rock, then they get an extra, how many hundred thousand people watching on Peacock, and they look like geniuses to, you know, one of the major corporations that they're trying to get to fucking buy them. Jim, our next question sent to cornydrivethru at gmail.com is from Dave Sosiska. Uh, Dave Sasitka. Sasitka? Dave Sasitka in Epping, New Hampshire. In Epping, New Hampshire? What Epping. did New Hampshire ever do to you? Not, you got that fucking New Hampshire. Not Epping, Epping. Oh, never mind. Let's go to Dave's question. I know both of you are historians and collectors. As a young fan in the 1970s in the WWF territory, I remember being disappointed at the poor selection and quality of souvenirs available at the local wrestling shows. If some visionary, before Vince, had come along, could promoters' fortunes have turned based on having better merchandise to sell fans, at least partially? Is that it? That was it. Okay, I think the question 
can be boiled down to if they had better merchandise in those days, would they have made more money? And yes, obviously, the answer is yes. Um, some places did. I mean, they, there was always an arena program. We mentioned Jerry Jarrett earlier. His first job when he was eight years old or whatever was selling slamogram programs for five cents a piece back then. But at, in 1950, if you sold a thousand of those, that was fifty dollars, and fifty dollars in 1950 is what um, six or seven hundred dollars today. There were always programs, and the office could keep all the the profit above the cost of printing, and. Yes, there was merchandising of individual wrestlers, especially the first, you know, round of TV network in the in the fifties. There was the Vern Gagne wrestling game and all that other stuff. But the territories really didn't get into they didn't get into merchandising the guys because the guys would bitch and they'd want to cut and they didn't want to go through all that shit and they didn't see the the value in it. And then later on you know, as the uh, as the, as the business got hot in the '80s, I mean, Tennessee with me was again uh, early on selling major multiples of pictures of all the talent and T-shirts and uh, I mean frisbees. And Lawler had some guy in Memphis that did merchandise for him. There were Jerry Lawler drinking cups and Jimmy Valiant frisbees and all this shit, right? And none of it was expensive because people weren't going to spend. There were no replica belts. There were no big ticket items. The fans weren't going to spend that kind of money back then. But everybody, when you had 5,000 people coming to a building every week and they were going to spend a couple dollars on a picture at a program, you know, then that would add up over the course of the year, as we've talked about before. But I think part of it is. The promoters didn't want to figure a lot of the guys in on cuts, on merchandise specifically featuring them, unless they were just the biggest guy in the territory. You know, Vern would do some stuff with the Crusher, whatever. Vern was fighting with Hogan over merch stuff, remember? Yeah, because he didn't want to, you know, they didn't want to turn loose of, a lot of times the promoters would just sell shit of the guys and not give them any money, and the guys would bitch. Uh, other times they didn't want to because they didn't want to cut them in, so they kept it to just their promotion, their program, and you know a T-shirt of a all-star wrestling or whatever. But I have all the records, all the financial records, all the correspondence, everything for all the deals Norm Keitzer did with various guys from the Destroyer yeah. to Mad Dog Vashon to the Crusher, various other people. And see, those guys were taking matters in their own hands and selling their own shit, putting an ad in the wrestling magazines. So they didn't have to go through the promoter at the live events, but it, you know that's the way it was. It, it it they definitely all could have made more money as you know those of us who tried found out when I started the championship wrestling magazine. They were I think three dollars a piece, and the fans would pay it because they got all kinds of pictures of their favorite wrestlers and got to read about them, and they had something they could get autographed. And then, obviously, since then, it's blown up into a multi-multi-million dollar business, merchandising with everything from belts to ring-worn stuff to replicas of all kinds of shit. But in the old day, I, I loved the paper shit. I just loved the documentation of here was the card, here's news on what was happening, the arena program, and the old magazines. But there's somebody that collects everything these days. But yeah, a lot more money could have been made back then 
if they'd bothered to, but they didn't. They didn't expand that way. I'm always blown away that no one tried to do anything action figure wise, even cheaply, very, very cheaply before the LJNs took off here in the States. I'm not counting Japan, obviously. You know, again, the, the toy companies didn't have pro wrestling on their radar and the wrestling promoters didn't have toy companies on their radar and they really didn't think about it. And then the question, because of the transitory nature also, I'll say this and then we can move on to because it's your show. But the time that it takes, and we know the lead time in getting action figures made and developing and stuff and everything, none, no wrestlers were under contract. And if you, as a promoter, spend any time and effort in a, talking to a toy company and setting up a deal like that, unless it was a deal like it was, you know, Watts in McGurk's territory or Lawler and Jarrett's territory or one of the top guys that were in the office or owned a piece of the thing wasn't going anywhere, you might set all that stuff up. And by the time the figures are ready to be released, the guy's been gone from your territory for six months. And then what the fuck? Who gives a shit? Nobody's going to buy them out of sight, out of mind. You know, they got new talent. It, it was, it just didn't work when guys weren't under exclusive contract for long periods of time and merchandising systems already in place and et cetera. It's amazing to think about what wrestling could have been financially if any of the mechanisms that are there today in terms of shirts or figures or anything were there back then. And everyone wants to say, look at how much money they're making now. You can't even compare them to some of the people of the past. We don't know what a lot of oh, those people good. would have made. Well, again, in 1986, the Rock and Roll Express fan club. Um, what was it to join? Was it $10 or was it $12? You got the 45 record. You got the fucking life-size poster and a newsletter. And they did $2 million on that in a short period of time. Now, imagine if the Rock and Roll Express came around in the last few years. They would be able to have a new shirt as much as they want, but let's say a new shirt every month. Yeah. They'd be able to have action figures that they could sell at a nice markup and then sign. They'd be able to do it all themselves. They had none of that. Think of how much money. If you actually just start thinking about how many people join that fan club and give a percentage of that audience would buy an action figure of Ricky and Robert or buy a shirt, maybe two shirts if they're once a month. Who knows? Think about how much money they could have made. Well, besides the the cameos. Can you imagine? Wow, yeah, the I didn't women, even think of that. Yeah. <laughs> the, the girls between the ages of 13 and 25, just in the states of North and South Carolina, that would have asked for their birthday, for Christmas, just let Ricky and Robert speak my name on video and blow me a kiss. I'll pay any price. I'll do it. If these girls would do anything, and I mean anything, already just to get Ricky and Robert to wave at them. So, I mean, the nobody in wrestling today is as popular as the Rock and Roll Express were in the Carolinas in 1986. That's a pretty foregone fucking conclusion. So the money they could have made if they could have reached all those people was insane. Well, Jim, it would probably be a pretty depressing thought for Ricky or Robert to think about the money they could have made or maybe even the money they did make and just weren't paid. Oh, they can't club. dwell on it. It a can't dwell on it. It would be very anxiety-producing. I think so, and if that was the case, they would probably need someone to talk to. Well, and folks, if you feel like that you've been screwed out of a couple million dollars on your fan club, or 
If you came along too early to get cameo video messages out to all the girls that are lusting after you, and it's still giving you anxiety, or any other reason that you need to talk to somebody, well then go to our old friends at BetterHelp, because after all, this episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, along with many of them here in our archives, because consistently we've had feedback from the Cult of Cornet members that therapy, and specifically trying better help, help them solve problems, get over issues, or become a better person when life gets you bogged down and you feel overwhelmed and you're not out there pumping the way you need to be. Sometimes you just need to run something by someone else, get another viewpoint or someone else's opinion on things. And that's what the folks at BetterHelp do with licensed therapists. They are the I'm trying to figure out the exact verbiage, the world's largest at this type of thing, certainly the most well thought of. Uh, It's convenient, flexible, affordable, entirely online. You fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist. You can switch therapists at any time, no additional charge. And you can do it on your schedule, in your own time, in your own way, but you can make the effort to make some changes in your life if you want to live a more empowered life. That's what Laurenitis told me one time we ought to do to the wrestlers. We ought to empower them instead of yell at them. I said, how about just some way or another making them figure their shit out however we do it? However you want to do it, BetterHelp will help you do it. So all you got to do is go to BetterHelp. That's H-E-L-P, BetterHelp.com slash J-C-E, and you're going to get 10% off your first month's services. BetterHelp dot com slash jce for 10 percent off your first month's services when you need somebody to talk to because we're just talking at you you can talk back to us but we can't hear you well the people at better help can hear you except for that one deaf therapist they got named sam he can't hear he can't hear it there's thing. no deaf therapist named sam let's not joke about this they have fine therapists that you should check out today if you need someone to talk to there's better help I thought he was trying to communicate with me in sign language. You're telling me he was just telling me what he thought of me? I guess so. I uh I guess so. How are we supposed to end it? Better <laughs> Betterhelp.com slash JCE. If you need help like Brian, better help. <laughs> I certainly do right now, but Jim Yes. There are some other people in wrestling that may need some help. We've received several emails about several comments that were made over the past week in wrestling. One that a lot of people have sent in. Let me go to the email here. One of them sent the corny drive through at gmail.com from Gene. Hi. I was wondering what Jim's thoughts were on Conan's recent comments on Takeshita doing the Eddie Guerrero frog splash. Do you remember this from the match? Uh, yeah, yeah, yes. He, uh, he, they were in El Paso. He goes up, he does the wiggle and does the frog splash off the top on MJF. Got a big pop. Big pop. Big pop. Apparently Conan on his podcast commented, here's a quote. Well, Takeshita, whatever, he's got heat with me, and he's lucky I wasn't in El Paso. Because when he went up, and he did the Eddie Guerrero thing for the frog splash, you're not Mexican, dude. (laughs) I don't care. Stick to your nationality. Stick to your nationality. This got people up in arms. Conan even trended for the first time maybe ever over this. What are your thoughts on this comment and the idea that only – Conan's not Mexican, by the way. He's a Cuban-American, I believe. 
that only Mexican wrestlers can pay tribute to Eddie Guerrero. Well, I mean, Conan was friends with Eddie and, you know, I guess uh, Hispanic, you can be Mexican or you can be Cuban or whatever. You're all in the Hispanic family. Um, I guess I can see where he might be. Hey, you know, cause it was my friend, it was Eddie and you're doing his shit. But at the same time, I don't think it was malicious. It wasn't like the guy was going to steal it because I'm sure somebody told him to do that. Because they're in El Paso, the home of the Guerreros, and the guy does a frog splash. So let's give an homage to Eddie Guerrero and do the Eddie that people liked it because they like thinking about Eddie Guerrero. Did Logan Paul just do it? Logan Paul just did it. Um, You know, I saw him do a frog splash. I can't remember whether he did the little dippy-doo beforehand. Well, you know, that... <laughs> If I was Conan, I'd be more pissed off at that because I'm pretty sure Logan Paul never met Eddie Guerrero and, and you know, is just doing something to get a pop. But with this kid, old take a shit, in Eddie's hometown, the Guerrero's hometown, he's a baby face. People like him. He's doing a tribute or an homage with all respect. Um, I, I, I don't know if I'd pick that to be upset about but i could because conan's friends with eddie i can see why he might have been a hey, stay in your lane but i don't, I don't think it's a bigger deal i don't think it's a big deal either way to be honest with you it's not too much of a big deal i mean it's a stupid comment and again people jumped on it miro had a comment about it did you see that i did not now what would miro have to say about these things miro last seen as a professional wrestler months and months and months ago, maybe a year ago at this point. I don't even know the last time we saw him. When was the last time we saw Miro? I I don't know. At, over at the Kroger in line at the U-Scan? I don't know. Well, he's still starring on Twitter where he said, quote, I bet you all that Conan, or whatever his name is, can't last 10 seconds with Takeshita. What? What, right now? It, 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 right this second, yeah, with old Take is 20-something years old and Conan's 60 and awaiting another kidney transplant or something, I have a feeling he could probably take Conan right now. Does that does that necessarily prove anything there? What's Miro's? Is Miro friends with Take? What's going on here? Is he just doesn't like Conan? Has Miro even met Has him? he even met him? Yeah, <laughs> Take's only been working there a few months. Miro hadn't showed up in a fucking year. So... Maybe there's heat from when Conan was there last time, and Miro just don't like Conan. Well, we will see how this turns out, but... I think they're all looking for reasons to fucking gripe at each other, because it's the AEW locker room, what the fuck, and or asso associated environs. Well, Jim, speaking of the AEW locker room, Cody Rhodes this past week, or was it last week, was on Ariel Hawani's show, I believe the MMA Hour is the name of the show, and he commented on his thoughts about the CM Punk fight with the elite at all out did you see any of this or hear any of this i i didn't hear it i saw a a quote on twitter and that's about all i the depth i got into it i knew you were going to be asking me about it well i have some audio here let's play this again this is from the mma hour with ariel hawani we're going to review cody rhodes on there hopefully the audio plays all right let's try it now gosh like even if you remember when he came back, everyone was fired up about mm -hmm. that. Everybody. Uh, so when I watched, let me stop for a second. He's talking about CM Punk coming back. Yes. Watched it just from my sitting there. I was not 
there were some people texting me. I remember somebody texting me, man, you're the smartest guy in the room. And I wanted to write back like, F you, man. Like, I, I don't feel that way. I feel this thing we built got damaged and, uh, and I'm not putting any blame on anybody. Uh, sorry. I was super Switzerland. No, no, moment. I get it. I'm not putting any blame on anybody, but I just hated seeing that. Let me stop for a second. There's no blame to be placed on anybody. Super Switzerland. Well, I mean, it's Super not, Switzerland. <laughs> it's not his place now to come in and say, you know, because people were saying you're the smartest guy in the room. The implication was they were saying you got out of there before the shit started fucking hitting the wall. But I can understand him not being happy that the whole company was in chaos and that they had basically his former co-EVPs had run off the their biggest money drawn star. I can understand why he wouldn't be happy to hear that, even if he had already left. You know, and why should he place blame to anybody? Because why should he get in the middle of it and then have a bunch of people texting him, whichever side it was? He he doesn't have a dog in that fight anymore. He's overdoing his own thing for the big boys. Well, let's go back to Cody. Because as the company grows, and I hope it continues to grow, I hope people remember the mission in the first place, why we were there. And if you bring in people who don't know the mission, then things like that can happen. And and I'm I'm not saying he didn't know the mission or anything of that nature, but I was just <laughs> well, Yeah, out. I think he just did. Yeah. If you don't know the mission, this is what can happen. I'm not saying he didn't know the mission. However, this is what happened. <laughs> so you are saying he didn't know the mission. What is the mission, Jim? I thought the mission was Tony Khan's got a lot of money and he's always wanted a wrestling company. That was pretty much the mission from Tony's. You know, the other guys thought they were going to change the world. And Cody, uh, I think with every good intention, you know, thought they were going to change the world in the wrestling business. And unfortunately, he didn't realize that he was also going into business with children. He was going to soon become older, older and tireder. Yeah. And again, Cody has been very diplomatic. A lot of it's contractual with an NDA, but he's been very diplomatic about everything there. He won't even admit that there were ever problems with him and the Bucks and Omega. I mean, that's how far it's gotten, but let's go back to this audio. Well, there are, there is the every once in a while, the comment that, you know, everybody had their own view of wrestling and hey, that's fine. You know, I wanted to do this and somebody else wanted to do that. It's obvious who wanted to do what. That's how I felt. I was bummed out because I have, you win the title, it's a feather in your cap. You win the Royal Rumble, it's a feather in your cap. Building an alternative wrestling promotion is definitely a feather in the cap. I don't want that to be erased. I don't want that to go away. Plus, there's not as many jobs in wrestling as people think. There's about a thousand people who work there, structurally, infrastructure, and talent. I'm proud of them, and I want to make sure they're able to feed their families. And that was a situation that was so big and heavy. Uh, I don't think it was helpful. Right. And I, I don't know, maybe maybe you can make it helpful. Maybe you can do something with it. But it, it was just that's how I felt. No heat on Punk, no heat on Matt, Nick, Kinney or Tony. I was just bummed out when I saw it. That's not how we envisioned it. That's the desert. If you were at all in, were you at all in? No. All right. The spirit of all in. If you ever lose the spirit, you're lost. Right. And I think the spirit was gone in that moment. Doesn't mean you can't get it back. But it was just a bummer. Mm. I didn't. uh I also felt weird because I always talked to everybody. So I was like, I don't want to like make it look like I'm taking any sides right, here. Right, right. You know, like I'm literally just an observer now. I'm not there, guys. 
no connections, you know, other than the initial connection. So just a bummer. All right, Jim, what are your thoughts on Cody there? Well, it just, it's, it's, it's a bummer. It's a bummer, man. I mean, you know, again, what else can he say? He can, he can, you know, break any NDAs, as you mentioned, and he can piss off a bunch of people that are going to be texting him and whining about it and everything, or he can just be diplomatic and move on with his day. And I think that's what he's doing there. He doesn't have to worry about it anymore, and he's probably as disappointed to see it from his old cohorts. But that probably also reinforces in his mind that he made the right decision. Jim, our next question sent to cornydrivethrough at gmail.com from Charlie in Starkville, Mississippi. Here we go. The Charlie alert. Liv Morgan said she wants to pursue an acting career. Good. What are your thoughts on Morgan wanting to be an actress? And I'm what for it. And what do you think about female wrestlers that want to use wrestling as a springboard to an acting career? I think it should work for all of them as quickly as possible. Get the fuck on out of here. Um, I didn't know she said that because I don't listen to what Liv Morgan has to say, but it's obvious. You mean to tell me any of these girls? I'm going to say, you know, I believe that Rhea Ripley probably would have. Because she's so natural, she gets it. But you mean to tell me that almost any of these other girls right now in the WWE would have got in the wrestling business if it was still the wrestling business and they just wanted to be in it? And it wasn't that they're going to instantly make hundreds of thousands of dollars and get on OnlyFans like Mandy Rose and make millions and be on TV and marry other semi-celebrities and be on reality shows and blah, blah, blah. No, they think it's a big fight. They get to travel the world and be in, in show business on TV. That's why none of the fucking female wrestlers look like they goddamn know what the fuck they're doing. Because they, they, they've come into a, an entertainment company. It's like hiring on with the Harlem Globetrotters or whatever. And that's what, and then they think they'll graduate to television and OnlyFans and motion pictures and sitcoms. And like I said, I'd like to think that Rhea Ripley is not like that because she gets it. And Natalia, of course, you know, she's there because of family and, and genealogy. Um, and I may be in Becky Lynch. She was doing it before she, you know, got a contract and went to the performance center. But most of the, was Liv Morgan ever an indie wrestler? I don't know. I don't want to say anything one way or the other because I don't know. So that's, you know, so you think about what I would think about it is that, yeah. And some of the guys are that way too now. So I don't think anything more of them. If you just get in the wrestling business because you want to be a TV star, fuck you. Take up somebody else's fucking time and effort trying to teach you to do something if you're not serious about it. The amount of wrestlers that are constantly hanging out in or around Los Angeles because they think it's going to open up some kind of acting door is kind of astounding. It's been happening for a long time, too. I didn't – actually, I didn't even realize that. But if they are, well, that's just fucking sad. Well, Jim, if they are – If they are. And they – It's just hard for me to stomach. If they're hard for you – if they're hard for you to stomach – Maybe you need something to be done to your stomach. Maybe you could do something to your own stomach to improve the situation. Maybe you and your stomach are the problem 
And we can't do anything about you, but we can help your stomach. Folks, I'll tell you what. You know, I just mentioned last week that I had the colonoscopy. Just as, you know, again, one of these preventative type of things, but you never know what they're going to find up there. And now they've told me I need more fiber. I got to take care of my gut health. That's what I got to do. And and folks, I'll tell you what, there I'm I'm reading up a lot of information that has been put in front of me on your gut and gut health and habits related to your gut and probiotics and gastrointestinal things and 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 things that you digest and ways you digest. And if I if I only had time to read you this these lengthy pieces that I've been reading on how to take care of your insides. It's amazing. Some of these words I've never even heard before. But nevertheless, to boil everything down into something that's manageable, that you can understand, that you can hang your hat on. We got friends, friends of the program here, our friends at Seed. And Seed are responsible for producing one of the finest probiotics that uh, that well that all of modern medicine has ever produced and you know probiotics have been studied to for- support a range of benefits within the gastrointestinal system the reinforcement of gut barrier function the support of crosstalk between your gut and your immune cells and everybody knows that if you have words coming from your stomach that you can hear that means that your gut and your immune cells are talking to each other and they're not just, it's not idle chatter. It's stuff that they each need to know about how to make you healthy. And I've also heard that there are three ways to support your gut immune axis. You got to increase your daily fiber intake. Did you know that certain fibers are fermented by gut microbes and biotransformed into short chain fatty acids, which help maintain immune health? Brian, did you realize that? Oh, no, I didn't know. And also, you got to prioritize the sleep. You got your circadian rhythm. That means you've you've eaten a bunch of cicadas. And it plays a key role in maintaining the homeostasis of the microbiome. And the gut microbiome has its own circadian clock. Wow. You got to manage the stress. Because the inflammation that often accompanies higher levels of stress can trigger blooms of pathogenic microbes that promote dysbiosis and increase intestinal permeability, which is also known as a leaky gut. And that's the last thing I want to be doing is dripping all over my new carpet in my freshly remodeled room because my gut's leaking. And where would it leak? Potentially, I guess, out the ass. That might be the most attractive place for the the leaking to occur. So the point is, folks, here's what we need to do. <laughs> well, I'm just I'm just telling you, here's what we need to do. We need to to take care of our gut. And we need to go to the folks at seed at seed.com, S E E D.com because they are right now producing seeds ds01 daily symbiotic and that is something that's going to help you with all of this stuff if i only had time again you're going to be maintaining your blood cholesterol levels you're going to be supporting healthy intestinal recycling of cholesterol and bile and i'll tell you what 
We recycle a bunch of bile on this program every week, but we still need some helpful hints from the folks at Seed. And not to mention the gut barrier integrity, gut immune function, micronutrient synthesis. They'll be more than happy to talk to you about all these things. The point is, folks, you got to take care of your stomach. For heaven's sake, you won't be able to just chow down on a, a big old triple cheeseburger if you don't take care of your stomach. So you got to do these things. And right now, if you go to seed.com slash drive and use the code drive, you'll get 20% off your first month of Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic. That's seed.com slash drive. Avoid gut mania. Head to the trusted source for symbiotics. Start a new healthy habit today. Get the real deal in a symbiotic that's backed by clinical trials and scientific data. They have looked at this shit from one end to the other, and they have determined that this is the stuff you need to do for a wonderful gut health journey. Seed.com slash drive. Use the code drive. You're going to get 20% off your first month of this daily symbiotic. You'll have a symbiosis with your symbiotic. That's right. Try seed. 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 That's right. I've got, you know, people told me, my mother warned me years ago that if I didn't change my ways, I would go to seed. And son of a gun, I've ended up right there at seed and they're helping me stay healthy. There you go. Mama Cornette approved as Mama Cornette always used to say. It's like gum on a big boot heel. That's what she never said in her life. Well, ladies and gentlemen, let's get going with a few more questions here. <laughs> Jim, let me get this next one in. Jim, this was sent to cornydrivethrough at gmail.com from Michael. I've always wondered, how dirty, disgusting does the ring get towards the end of the night? <laughs> Do they wash it thoroughly each night yep. or before each match? <laughs> Has Jim had any memorable, gross experiences with this? Oh. I noticed at the Royal Rumble, Alexa Bliss was laying right where Otis had rolled all sweaty earlier in the night, and Rhea Ripley put the ring rope in her mouth. Is this all as gross as it all sounds, or does the ring naturally soak up goo, and they quickly wash it thoroughly throughout the night? How do they clean up lots of blood? The ring always looks clean on TV. Oh boy, where do we start? Well, first of all, um, this is something that Vince was doing back to the Attitude Era when they got, uh, they started making some money and TV became more important. Vince, and I'd never seen any promoter ever, and even WCW under Turner Broadcasting, etc., I'd never seen any promoter do this. Vince McMahon, would crack out a brand new canvas for every episode of Monday Night Raw. Wow, I didn't know that. And so they ended up, as a matter of fact, when I came down here to OVW, I brought three or four canvases with me because they had so fucking many, and they would, they would he wouldn't use on television a used canvas. So they How much, just, how much I mean, do those cost? Uh, fuck, back there 20-something years ago, a good one, $1,000, $1,200. It's, you know, 25 square feet of high-grade canvas with grommets and everything put in, blah, blah, blah. 
but anyway, that's what they, he he got mad when they had a stained mat one time, and there was a piece of duct tape covering up a small rip in the corner. He said, "New canvas for Raw every night now." But if you're talking about now, I would eat dinner off of the WWF canvases, whether they'd had a match go on in them or not. Those are the cleanest fucking rings because they've got a budget. They want it's high def TV now. Everything's lit up. They want it all to look nice. If you talk about the old days in the wrestling business, did they wash the canvas every night? Did they ever wash the canvas? I'm serious. Except if they did an angle where somebody got tarred and feathered and they got molasses on the canvas or a a paint angle or the thing just got so many holes in it that duct tape wouldn't fucking solve it anymore and they'd get rid of it entirely, they would never clean it at all. Because you have to get the like a steam, a carpet steamer or, or something like that and take it outside where it can dry or in a big warehouse and you got to find, and most people, most promoters didn't take the time or the trouble. I guarantee you, I saw the same canvas in the matches in Louisville sometimes for a year, two years in a row. And I don't know that it was ever cleaned. Spot show rings? With the, with the canvas that they had that would be rolled up and put on the back of an open trailer and carried down the fucking interstate to the next time after time after time. The canvas on the ring in the Dallas Sportatorium had been on there so long that it, it smelled like mildew from 10 feet away. And every time I've told this story, every time you'd pound slap on the mat, if you had hay fever, Jesus Christ, you'd start coughing and sneezing. How were there not more staph infections? Or is, is there it were. just that we didn't hear all about them? You didn't hear about them. Guys, oh, I got a zit. I take some antibiotics or fucking heat up a fucking piece of uh, uh, that white wrist tape and fucking stick it on there. It'll bring it up to a head, stick it with a pin, whatever the fuck going about your way. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, we took care of our canvas as much as we could in Smoky Mountain, and I I changed them ever so often. And in OVW, we did the same thing because we got a few free canvases from the WWF, and and we had room where we could put it out in the building in the Davis Arena and run the fucking steamer over it every so often. But no, in the territory days, especially spot show rings or a eh town, but even even Memphis. I've ever seen the same goddamn. Finally, I think they changed it one time after it was after one of those Lawler Funk bloodbaths when it was a white canvas and you couldn't hardly see it white anymore. But no, it was months and months before those things were ever touched. And then if somebody did have a staph infection outbreak or something, and somebody would say something, they'd ah just throw it away. We got another one somewhere in the trailer. And it would be a dirty one too, but it wouldn't be with the guy had that just had staff wouldn't have been on it recently. No, they stunk. You had every kind of goddamn, you know, shit. And especially then outdoor shows in the summertime, spot show ring with the guys bumping in and out of the ring in a fucking fairgrounds field, mud, dirt, dog shit, blood, sweat, whatever the case. I can't get past the fact that Vince McMahon, if you're counting TV and pay-per-view, not knowing how many there were that year, you're looking at at least 60, 65 canvases brand new yeah. every year. Who manufactures them? Where do you get them? Omar the tent maker. 
<laughs> no, honestly, that's what a lot of time you'd go to a tent and awning place or somebody, anybody that deals with canvas, you know, uh, banners, things like that, whoever, you know, people just, that's who makes canvases. They don't care whether what you're going to use it for. But no, there was not a lot of uh, cleanliness was not next to godliness on the rings and the wrestling business. And I mean, that's a... That always bugged me too. I, I hate it when the ring post looked like shit and hadn't been painted in five years, or there was no apron skirt you could see under the ring and it looked like shit. That was the first thing I saw with Memphis stuff that kind of took me a little bit out of it when I was a kid before I had really experienced it. Was how come there's no? I didn't even know it was called a skirt. How come there's nothing yeah. on the apron? Didn't have apron skirts. Cause, well, here's the thing. In those days, each arena, because they were there every week, each arena stored its own ring. The same ring in the Louisville Gardens was used every week. Same ring in Memphis was used every week. Same ring in Evansville. And Lexington was only once a month, so Buddy Wayne or Ken would bring that on his trailer. And you had building employees putting the thing up, and it was just extra, it was extra expense, extra time. Some places had skirts, some places didn't. A lot of in Memphis, what they did was they started getting the goddamn canvas like five, four or five feet too big, and they just tied it down to the bottom, and the canvas was also an apron skirt. And then sometimes <laughs> it would it barely cover the go over the edges of the fucking ring, and you could see all the way under. You could see the fucking padding. It just de- it, it depended. This was low budget shit. They never spent. Any money, none of the territories that they didn't have to. Jim, another question that a lot of listeners, especially in the last week, have been sending in questions about because Dave Meltzer, I believe, said something on one of his shows and various things going around. There is now a growing consideration amongst fans that CM Punk may return to AEW at some point in the next several months. What do you think of this and what do you think it would mean? Well, they need him. I think everybody's pretty much acknowledged that fact. Now, there is no the guy in that company. There's a guy wearing the belt, MJF, who is the only needle mover that they've had for ratings or, the you know, really the big matches besides Punk. There's, you know, there's other guys, but they're Nobody knows whether Moxley is a heel or a babyface or what his deal is. Brian Danielson has not been assertive enough with his talent to where he's viewed as the unapproached top guy in the company. Nobody gives a shit about the EVPs anymore because the bloom is off that rose. They've seen all they have to offer over and over again. Now the viewers tune out except for the bedrock faithful. So they need a star. And they're still paying him. See, that's what a lot of people, they have to still be paying him. Tony's, he's, he's under contract. So he's either getting paid or he's been fired. And he's injured. So I don't think he's been fired. And he's injured. So he ain't been, we'd, we'd have heard about it anyway if they'd have fired him. If they'd have come to some exit agreement, we would have heard about it. So he's still under contract. And that means he's still getting paid. And the injury that he had September, September, October, November, December, January, February, he's pretty good any time now. So they're either going to have to, through their lawyers, through their whatever their 
mitigation mitigation mediation process is he's going to have to either get bought out paid off and released or he's going to continue to get paid in which case then if he's healthy and getting paid then is he going to come back to work and that's the question they got to answer and if if he does come back to work there's got to, I would have to think for a guy like Punk, who is, as we've mentioned, it's been phrased, doesn't take being disrespected very lightly. He, he, he doesn't have to come back and wrestle Twinkle Toes or the Buckaroos, and he, he wasn't before. He's never been in the ring with them, and he probably wasn't ever going to be because he doesn't do that shit. And he wasn't there for that. But he has to coexist in the buildings with them. And I don't believe that he's going to come back or that he would come back and continue to do what he did for the company, which was TV ratings and million-dollar pay-per-view gates and et cetera, unless Tony sits down with his EVPs and says, hey, you guys need to go mend some fences. There needs to be some kind of apology, settlement, agreement to move forward amongst you guys because we need this guy. I'm paying him. I've got to, you know, he's either going to come back to work and and do business for me or I'm going to have to release him and then he's going to be able to go and do even bigger business for my competitor. And you guys don't have the leverage right now to say that I should do something that's going to hurt my business. Yes, and and Harpo's contract is almost up. The Buckaroos, they got one last year on the the thing that Tony, uh, the clause that Tony exercised, but they're going to be out of there or they're going to be renegotiating again. And what what do they have to renegotiate on? They've gotten okay. everything. They've gotten their family's jobs, their friends' jobs. They've gotten to do all their little jerk-off segments, exist in their own they have their own Cody-verse, exist in their own little Cody-verse. Their own belts. They've gotten everything they ever wanted from Tony, and it seems like it's not enough. But 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 now what do they have to negotiate on? They tank the ratings every time they're featured. Twinkle Toes was gone for an extended period of time, and business didn't suffer. Got better in certain instances. The Buckaroos, is anybody clamoring to see them? Now that we know that they're never going to have the rubber match with FTR and it'd be meaningless at this point if they did, who does who do they want to see the Bucks wrestle now? Anybody? It was always, oh, I want to see Bucks FTR, Bucks FTR. What do they want to see now? They saw seven times in a row against Felix and Penthouse. Who else is there? So I think Tony needs to sit down his EVPs and say, Punk's healthy. I'm paying him a ton of money. He's the only one that has consistently produced big numbers for me and the ratings and the gates that he's drawn on top blow away the shit that you guys have done. And you started this fucking whole deal and put me in this position. So I think y'all ought to line up with your tail between your legs, and go and say, I'm sorry, Mr. Brooks, for the problems that we've had in the past. We'll stay out of your way going forward. We'd ask if we could help you, but we know we're incapable of that, and you wouldn't take it because it would be a hindrance. So we'll just stay out of your way, and we apologize. Then maybe he gets punked back. What else is there? 
who else is he going to sign right now that's going to do what for the numbers what Punk did? It's going to do for the quality of the in-ring what Punk did. There's nobody else out there now that he can get because Vince has already snapped him up because he wants to sell his white elephant. In terms of Punk, if he did come back, there's a natural thing there to be done with him and MJF. Yes. But looking beyond that, and that may be the initial thing they just go right back to, and I'm sure they can get months and months of great TV if those guys are on the same page. But beyond that, if you're CM Punk, and things, there are apologies, you don't have to be friends with anyone, but there are apologies, and the mission, whatever Cody Rhodes was talking about before, the mission is still the mission, which is, this is Tony's company, let's try to make this as good as we can. Will you work with an Adam Page? Would you work with a Young Bucks if they were willing to do it? Well, I think Adam Page is irrelevant to this conversation. And and more more than likely he is, but I'm just saying in terms of what you're bringing back, would you? That's that's what Page is irrelevant. The biggest money thing they could put together, the shortest term big money thing that would be attractive right away, it wouldn't need to be built, especially to the base AEW audience, is Punk and FTR against the Buckaroos and, and Harpo in a six-man. Because, again, the Jerry Jarrett principle, people know there's legitimate heat. There's been a real fight. They don't like each other for a shoot. That is what draws money in wrestling. However, the problem becomes that in any other circumstance like that, when other guys have gotten in fights and done whatever down through the history of wrestling into territories and nationally or whatever, and people have known about it, they've turned it into a way to do something in the ring and sell tickets to it, and people have responded to it. But I don't know that you can do that here because I mean, let's just face it. Being legitimately real, my real opinion is Matt and Nick Jackson and Kenny Omega don't have any clue of what the wrestling business is and didn't and wouldn't have gotten in it if they'd known what it was to begin with and they've been trying to change it into something that they want it to be because it's their specialty. They do that shit, so they want that to be wrestling, even though most people don't want that shit to be wrestling. And that unprofessionalism and stuck-uppedness and self-indulgence that they think their fucking farts don't smell. They don't even th- they think they even smell better than mine after a colonoscopy. I don't think that they realize that they're now in a position where they could be professional and do business with a guy and draw real money for the first time. They've they've brought their band of merry misfit fans with them and they're like they do everywhere they go but it's not real money it's not sizable amount it's not over a million people we've seen that to get a bunch more people interested in them that are not interested in their playtime matches into something that people might think there might be something go on here the problem is they would probably not appreciate being in that position And I don't think Punk could trust him to not take advantage of it. They run in his locker room, and he takes one down, beats one up, and his buddy takes care of the other two. That was a real fight breaking out organically. 
But if I'm punk and I'm working with these guys, I got to lay there for fucking Harpo to come off the top rope. Or I've got to stand there while the two little goof tennis shoe collectors throw super kicks at my face. Or you work a different kind of match. With a margin of error of a quarter of an inch, and they can say afterwards, oh, shit, we're sorry. Fuck you. I don't... They need to build trust with Punk. He doesn't need to build trust with them. So if they want to be in the money picture, if they want to be in a big match that actually might help the company, they would have to do a lot of salabimin and a lot of fucking tuck and tail with Punk to get him to trust them. And then they would have to follow through with not fucking potatoing him or elsewise, and say what you want about his UFC career, but does anybody think that Phil Brooks or CM Punk can't take either one of the Bucks down and beat the fuck out of him? Come on. Seriously? I think even they, especially after everything that happened in that locker room, and if you know what really happened, they didn't have a chance, and Omega didn't have a chance. I think even they would have to admit that. <laughs> I think Omega just wandered in confused like he is normally of what was going on around him and didn't realize until shit started happening. He was in a stu- his usual stupor, you mean. Yes, yeah. the stupor. But but anyway, so the, I, you know, I don't know whether they could put it together because why would Punk trust him? Because they think that they're bulletproof. They think they're special. They think they're EVPs. They think they could potato somebody. And it's, oh, I'm sorry, except they would get the fuck beat out of them on live television, especially if FTR was in there, because then all three of them couldn't do anything. So, you know, it would draw money, and if it was all a bunch of professional wrestlers, it would be happening probably already, or close to. But since one half of that equation is a bunch of children who got into business that they didn't understand to do play acting and be video game characters... They're probably scared that they would legitimately get their ass beat again, and they're indignant that Tony would want them to apologize to this guy. So there's probably going to be no movement because they're children and he doesn't have to work with them. Let me ask you this. Because we've said that I genuinely felt bad for Tony Khan when everything happened. I don't agree with the way he's handled things since it happened. And I think a lot of blame truthfully needs to be put on Tony Khan for things getting to that point because he's the one person who could have put his foot down and stopped it. And he did. He, he was hearing about it a long time before all of us heard about it and he didn't do anything about it. So that's when it was made public. Again, based on everything I know, I'm going to assume there's been very limited contact between Tony Khan, who was regularly talking to CM Punk as top star. It's been probably very little contact in the time since then, if you're CM Punk, based on everything that's happened, are you going to have any trust issues with Tony Khan if you did go back? Uh, yeah. Again, he knew, you know, there's no way Tony Khan didn't know exactly how Punk felt about these guys. And you know what? I actually think there's no way Tony Khan more than likely didn't agree with CM Punk on this stuff. Because he knows, and he's been hearing yeah. it from other people, and he's seen other things that happened. He, he just he happen. just couldn't go and be the boss to his friends. That's is right. what he couldn't do. So he has. Can he trust Tony Khan? Here's the thing: I don't think anybody is going to accuse Tony of being a, a crook or a manipulative, you know, like a Paul Heyman like figure all. that's manipulating everyone behind the scenes for his own selfish purposes. He's not that person. He's not that smart. 
He, and that's why he's where he's at because he came into wrestling thinking all these guys were going to be his friends because he's giving them jobs and everybody's going to be happy with each other because everybody enjoys each other in the wrestling business. And he finds out that it's egos and it's fucking backstabbing and it's goddamn jealousy and it's what about me instead of this other guy and he can't stay friends with everybody and he comes to the point where he has to tell some people, if not most people, what to do. Those are the things he can't handle. So I think everybody can trust Tony not to be a a con man and a shyster and a crook and, you That's know, manipulating meant, people. But the reason why you can't trust Tony is because he's too nice and too trustworthy. He won't hurt anybody's feelings. He won't fucking talk badly to a friend, even if it's business. You can't trust him to do anything because he's scared to either make these guys mad or they won't like him anymore or he just doesn't, he's not a person that likes confrontation. I know this may come as a surprise, but you have to kind of like a little bit of confrontation to be in the wrestling business. Or at least be able to manage it. Yes. And, and that's why you can't really trust Tony, not because he's evil or has anybody's worst interest at heart or trying to take advantage of somebody. It's because he's in over his head and cannot manage all of this. And so you can't trust him to do the right thing because he may just chicken out and just say, well, have one of the lawyers talk to whoever. I, I don't want to talk to him because it, it won't be fun. See, I think that's the real story. There's going to be no punk coming back to AEW unless punk and Tony Khan are on the same page and, we don't know what's the status of that relationship right now, but everyone in AEW, it's based around Tony Khan. And this is the biggest star AEW has ever had. It's all going to be about that relationship. And if that relationship is okay right now, and again, I don't know. I don't know what the status is. But you brought up another thing. We also don't know how much longer the Bucks and Omega will be there. So if you're Tony Khan and you're looking at your future, you got to look at who you think will be there in the future. The guy under contract or the guys who aren't under contract. Well, and, and even if there wasn't a track record of uh, one guy outdoing the other guys when it comes to drawing and business, yeah, because if he just signed Punk, what was it? I don't, I don't know if they ever determined the length of Punk's contract, but he hasn't been back more than a little over a year now, right? So he's still got some time to go, and he certainly has not worn out his welcome to the point where the other three have. But that's, you know, unfortunately, that's what we're going to find out. If if Tony Khan has the nerve and the balls to do what's right, tell those other three, hey, you fucked me royally, and you've started this whole goddamn thing, and it's your fucking fault that it all came out in public, so you go to that guy and make him feel welcome, regardless of whatever you have to do. Kenny, fucking treat him like a bushy. Make him welcome. I got punk would probably down, turn down the Abushi treatment from Kenny, but nevertheless. <laughs> and if they wouldn't do it, they'd say, okay, well then in that case, then I'm just going to send you guys home and pay you out for the rest of the year. Here's the thing. Where are they going to fucking go? Kenny will go back to Japan. Jackson's will go back to fucking Cucamonga. Because if the WWE knows and is fully aware that Tony don't want him anymore, they wouldn't try to hire him. They only tried to hire him before to keep the billionaire's son 
from having access to them when he was starting a wrestling promotion, the content and quality of which they had no idea of at that point. Now that they've seen it and they've seen what's going on and these guys have stellar records at running TV viewers away and people rolling their eyes at their indulgent trampoline routines, you think the WWE is going to offer them anywhere near the amount of money they're making now when if they were to know that AEW wasn't even going to try? What the fuck? Why would they do that? Here, here's something that the other guys that can compete with our budget don't want and nobody else can afford to come anywhere close to, so we're going to give them a big contract? Fuck. And it's a tryout thing in a sense. I don't mean like it's a tryout like a guy at a taping, but we've also never, ever seen if the Young Bucks can work under the confines of someone else's rules. No, they can't. They can't, they, and they will refuse to. That's their whole thing, killing the business. That's the name of their company that they started. That's the name of their book. They can't do it the way anybody else tells them to do it or the way everybody else does it. They have to do their own shit. That's the only way they get over. And the only time that they were allowed to do their own shit, it leads to the fucking downfall of the rest of the company because it makes it impossible for anybody to take the rest of the programming from that company seriously when you got these two little jokers running around so so that that that's the point i'm trying to make is the only reason they got offers before is because they the wwe didn't want the billionaire's son to have access to anything if they were to be on the outs with tony they would be worthless in the wrestling business except to go to Japan. Kenny'd be back on top over there, and the Bucks would be back jerking the curtain with the junior heavyweight tag belts. And that's where else they're going to go. Well, you know, Jim, perhaps things would have played out a little differently if Tony Khan only had good legal advice, as opposed to the usual people that have been there for a while and are very comfortable and know how to play with Tony. Good, sound legal advice. I think that's what Tony Khan needs. That's right, because the legal advice Tony's getting right now from his his legal people that are in various positions under him or under other people, whatever positions they're in, Stephen P. New don't get in any of those positions. He puts other people in those positions, right? Call Stephen P. And folks, I know that many of you, if you've been wronged, wrongfully terminated, if you've been poisoned, if you've been kicked out of your home, if you've been deprived of common, ordinary household comforts by a negligent energy company or any of these things, you want those people that got sideways with you to be in some kind of certain position. Whether it be ready to be received doggy style, reverse cowgirl, missionary, whatever the position, I, Stephen P. New, yeah. he's always he's always the giver, and the perpetrator is always the receiver. Just bear that in mind, because if somebody has penetrated you in a way that you are not happy with, well, just turn it over to Stephen P. New, 
And I'll tell you what, he may have somebody else holding the head, but he's going to be fucking that dog. And speaking of dogs, you heard Stephen about... Stephen Pinute is not fuck dogs, ladies and gentlemen. Well, in a metaphorical sense. He fucks the shit out of him metaphorically. Metaphorically? Oh, my, he's to death, metaphorically. And and you can you can call somebody, it's insulting to dogs, but you can call somebody that has taken advantage of you and your family a dog? Someone that has cost you and your family money that you use to put food on in their mouths and on their table or in their table and on their mouths? Whichever it may be, you'd call them a dog. Well, Stephen P. New is going to round up all the stray dogs out there and bring them to legal justice. Just like, remember, we talked about that Intergy guy, the energy company down there in Louisiana, left hundreds of thousands of people without power because they did not spend the money to increase their infrastructure so it could handle hurricanes. Instead, they gave it all to the big wigs. And the guy who used to run the whole Intergy company has now been run off in shame, but he's running off with $43 million worth of stock in that company. That's what they repay uh, people for when they deprive innocent human beings of their electrical power and to power their, their CPAP machines and their resuscitators and their iron lungs. You know how much power it takes to run an iron lung these days. I've heard. So Stephen P. New is bringing Intergy to justice. He's also going to be filing multiple, I'm talking multiple suits in the very near future on behalf of more of the opioid-addicted babies in West Virginia and other places. There's about a half a dozen different states he's going to be filing suits in. He's got his finger in a bunch of different class-action suits all over the country to Stephen P. New. And he can do the same thing for you. If you need bailed out or represented or helped out of a bad situation, you need legal representation. Stephen P. New is the man for you. Newlawoffice.com, 888-692-8084. And if you're a famous wrestling personality and you need your name trademarked, well, he can point you in the right direction there also. Stephen P. New is the man for you. He loves helping out wrestlers, considering how much he loves wrestling. So that's the truth. If you're a wrestler and you need some help, get in touch with Stephen P. New. Yeah, don't don't let these dishonest major corporations like wrestling promotions owned by billionaires and sons of billionaires take advantage of you. Get Get representation. That's right. But Jim, let's get a couple more questions and get the hell out of here today. Speaking of billionaires, this next question was sent to CourtneyDriveThru at gmail.com. From William in Baltimore, who is not a billionaire, I don't believe. I have been pondering the proposed sale of the WWE. I have also been pondering why Vince would want to sell instead of passing ownership down to Stephanie. Would you agree that Vince doesn't need the money? Is the sale a sign of the lack of confidence in Stephanie? Something about this doesn't pass the smell test. No, you know, we've talked about this. It's not like that, you know, it's been a family business that long. It's not like under normal circumstances that Vince wouldn't, I want to pass it down to the kids, you know, or whatever. But no, he sees now that not only is the the company valued at $6 billion, which what in... When did they do the IPO and sold sold the stock? Two thousand one, 
Uh, I thought it was actually 99 or 2000, but maybe. Was it 2000? Okay, whatever the case it was. In 1995, he was fucking, again, miserable because they lost $6 million that year. He'd never lost money before in the wrestling business. And he was fucking verklempt about it. That's fucking less than a payoff to an illegal paralegal now. The amounts of money that we're talking about now, I think that Vince, two things. One, he wants to be around when that company sells, which it's never done before except from his father to him, for billions of dollars. And secondly, as we talked about when we analyzed this thing a couple weeks ago, I think he's seen the signs that the rights fees are collapsing, that the TV, new TV contracts might not be as certain as they were that the some of the players are out of the game now and they could be massively devalued and the last if if Vince McMahon was worried about losing six million dollars in 1995 you think he wants to lose two and a half billion dollars off of his fucking valuation of his company overnight yeah that's another thing everyone always says and you know the email here said doesn't Vince have enough money they always say he's a billionaire it's not like that's in cash since stock. No, they just they they just said that the W and I mean not like this isn't a large amount of money, but the WWE currently has about four hundred and something million dollars in cash and two hundred and something million dollars in debt. And so it's not like Vince has six billion dollars, like you said, in a fucking checking account. He's got more money or has access to more money and has more valuable things that he owns than he'll ever need. Yes, but it's it's Vince. The scorecard is who ends up with everything, that person wins. Who is the richest person in the world? That person's the most important person in the world. Who's the most successful? He's so competitive. You know, it's it's me right now. You know, I I have things for the rest of my life that I would like, and I sure do want to plant a bunch more trees. We got a few more renovations. I need you know, the water softeners need replaced, but I could probably exist for the rest of my life right now and be happy to not have to go through a lot of fucking trouble and work and stress and aggravation with what I've got. But Vince has never thought that way. Vince is like, I've got to have more, got to get more, got to do more, got to be bigger. So I think it's it's those two things. It, it's not just well, I'm getting old and nothing's really changed about the company and nothing's going to change. It's running the same way. So I'll give it to Stephanie. It's like, no, we built this thing up where it's worth $6 billion, allegedly. But that might that balloon might pop and the time is now and I'm back to get this thing done. That's what I think. And, and Vince can never have enough money. It's not because he even wants the money. It's just like that's the way he keeps score. Whether it's, you know, him and Trump being pissy because Trump's plane was bigger than Vince's or whatever. It's not even that he necessarily, he's not going to spend it having a good time. He's not going to get like the greatest hookers in the world. He's he's not going to have fun with it. He's going to fucking use it to make more money with. But to me, that's it. Well, Jim, some breaking news before we wrap up. I'm getting sent this by a few people from SI.com, an article about Mark Briscoe and just wrestling news in general. And it mentions this here. Let me read this for you. 
Khan revealed that Ring of Honor, which he purchased last March, will start airing new weekly television shows on Thursday, March 2nd on Honor Club, the streaming service platform. The first tapings will be February 25th and February 26th at Universal Studios in Orlando. So there it is, Ring of Honor, not on TV itself, but a new streaming show, taping in Orlando. What are your thoughts? Who's going to book it? I think you know the answer to that. Okay, so now he's doing two hours on Wednesday. He's doing an hour on Friday. Now he's going to do whatever the fuck this is for Honor Club on their own website. Plus, I would assume that he's responsible for dark and after dark and before dark and don't let the sun go down on me or whatever the fuck other programs they have. He can pop the corn too, I would guess, but at some point, when is he going to have a stroke and die and bleed out in the middle of the goddamn oh, street? Let's, let's not say that. Let's I'm not, no, I'm not saying I'm hoping, but what are you fucking doing to yourself, Tony? Again, it's, it's something that he's getting into. And as he's starting to buy more companies and get more shows and do more, it, he, he is not putting together any kind of infrastructure to address the problems that have been there since day one. He's just going to do all this shit himself. Uh, he, any human being fucking can't all of this. It's ridiculous. That's the problems. That's why guys get you see everybody complaining. Well, I went home and he forgot about me. I couldn't get him on the phone. Lance Archer. Remember him? He just said, yeah, I haven't laced up my boots in two months and it's not my decision. They can't find him. They can't get him or elsewise, you know, if, if there's trouble, they can't get him. And he hired six people in talent relations so that he didn't have to talk to any of the boys. Cause he's off booking more fucking imaginary wrestling shows for companies that he's yet to start. It's too much, especially for look at Tony. You can tell he's, He's withering under this, and he's an excitable boy to begin with, to quote Warren Zevon. And have you seen the the clips that are out there of him hugging people awkwardly and or jumping up and down in some kind of spasm playing wrestling promoter? Well, he's socially awkward, but that's a different thing. He's socially awkward. Okay, but that's a different I, I'm thing. just... All I'm saying is, before he runs two different wrestling programs across three or four different platforms, might be an idea if he gets his shit together on just one of those first. That's my comment. I'll leave it alone there. Well, considering what Ring of Honor always was, and again, it's very different since Tony bought it, but if the idea is to treat it still as this separate entity, and at least in terms of feeling and ambiance, what do you think about the idea they're going to be taping it at Universal Studios? Well, you don't need to know where something is being shot. Based on it, the crowds it, you'll get, actually, is more specific to why I'm saying that. Because Ring of Honor, so much of Ring of Honor was always about the audience. Yeah, well. For good or know, for bad. Again, I remember when I was in TNA and we were shooting at Universal. And you do three days in a row, and the third day, there'd be almost nobody in there. You know, the first day, pay-per-view, yes, the, all the fans from Florida and around the area, they would come, and you got in free. 
And then the second day for the TV, it'd be it'd be okay, you know. And then the third day, because how many days in a row can people come even if it's free, right? And they kept saying, well, we need a better crowd. We need a better crowd. If we could only get out of Orlando, well, they got out of Orlando and spent a bunch more money and didn't have better crowds. They didn't have that many people. <laughs> My thought was taping in Orlando, Florida, as a city, as a location, should have been easy as pie because it's a big city and you got a lot of fucking people there and you're letting them in free, right? The problem was when you go three days in a row or the fact that then they had FCW and then they had the outlaw shows in Florida and then everybody got used to going to wrestling in Orlando and not paying anything. And then there was too much free wrestling from everybody to go to, so it started to kill it. But as far as... We did the same thing in Louisville. We let people in free for our TV tapings. We were full every week for about three and a half or four years straight till Laura and I just started fucking with me. And then Paul started, Heyman started booking. And then it emptied out real quick. But by the same token, we gave them a, a show that they wanted to see and that they wanted to come back and see again. What the people in Orlando with TNA got was a bunch of disjointed matches. A lot of times they didn't show shit on the screen. They couldn't show shit on the screen because we were taping ahead. Or it was just bullshit because of shit stain people didn't understand. So they didn't give those people a good show that kept them coming back. They got in free and they saw a parade of matches, some of which were bleh. If you can give the people... Once a, once a week or two days in a row, once a month or some agreeable schedule like that where it's not, you're not just wearing people out, just making the trip over there and you give them a show that they want to fucking see that they enjoy and they want to come back and see more of, then Orlando will be fine. But if it's just taping endless loops of meaningless matches to put shit together and post later on. And the people there live don't know half the fuck of what's even going on. They're going to get the same thing as everybody else has got fans in Orlando are bored with fucking free wrestling. They've seen so much of it and they don't particularly give a shit. That's why when they wanted to do the developmental training program in Florida, I thought they were out of their mind because if I had the entire country to choose from to start a localized wrestling promotion to use as a training facility, the two places that I would stay away from in the entire country are California and Florida. California, because it's too big, it's too, it's, it's too expensive, and it's just too much. And the homeless and, have taken over. And the homeless, and, and also because then all the wrestlers would want to be TV fucking celebrities. And Florida, because they've seen so much wrestling, so much outlaw wrestling, so much bad wrestling, and you don't have to pay for a goddamn wrestling ticket there anymore and haven't for 15 years. And the homeless took over a long time ago. So that's all of that. Jim, more breaking news before we wrap things up there. Oh, boy. At the age of 82, Raquel Welch has passed away. Holy shit, I... Hadn't thought of Raquel Welch as in in the uh, 
manner of what age she would be currently. But that's I can't believe Raquel Welch is older than Jerry Jarrett. That, that is just crazy. Right. Yeah, I know. Favorite Raquel Welch role? Um, well, the one we had in, uh, one we had, I, I guess, in De Plains, Illinois in 1986 was the best role that I ever had with Raquel. Oh, will you stop it? Oh, no. No, I mean, she was in 1 million BC. I don't remember the character's name. Who gives a fuck about what her parts were? I'd rather look at her parts than her acting parts. Gorgeous woman. She was, she was just plain purdy. Just plain purdy. Purdy is a brand new speckled pup. Before plastic surgery was a necessity, she was naturally beautiful. But Raquel Welch, dead at the age of 82. And with that, Jim, we're going to wrap And this show, dead at the, this the show, four hour mark. Let's get one song and get the hell out of here. This one was sent to cornydrivethrough at gmail.com from Chris Rogers in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. Let's go to this. Someone to say, I slugged Matt Jackson today, and it doesn't matter that much to me. It hit Nick with a chair. I got someone to say, he's still been Olivier, and it doesn't matter that much to me. But Larry's getting scared. These EVPs are always fucking with me. Let me make one last address. One last address. Well, I got someone to say. Fuck that dumb fuck out of patient. It doesn't matter that much to me. Why don't you go have another drink? These EVPs are always fucking with me. Hey, let me make one last address. Well, there it is. A wonderful tribute to oh, the Misfits oh, classic. Oh. Last caress. Are you a fan of the Misfits? Uh, oh, I thought that was an original piece. No, that was Last Caress by the Misfits, a classic Oh, I, I forgot song. to caress them at all. Do you have a favorite Misfit? I, I actually, the Misfits? Wasn't that, um, who were the Misfits? You Dennis s- used to book them. No, not those Misfits. You're thinking of Harley Lewis and Derek Domino. Yeah, the Misfits. No, I'm talking about Glenn Danzig, Jerry Only, Doyle, Bobby Steele. The Misfits. I didn't know. I didn't. I didn't know about them. I've I've met Danzig a couple times, but I didn't. I didn't know he did something beforehand. You no, know, that this is what made him uh, almost semi-famous enough to become <laughs> Danzig. But uh, no, Bobby Steele's my favorite because he was the most fucked up apparently of the whole bunch, and for that brief moment in time. And I think it's probably 1980, it could be 1979, that brief moment where Bob Gruen, the photographer, was able to get John Lennon to come out of the Dakota and come check out some of the bands downtown. He had a good time, apparently, and he's leaving CBGB, and there's Bobby Steele sitting outside, looks 
a little disheveled, and John Lennon, feeling good about things, says, hey, buddy, are you okay? And Bobby still looks at him and says, hey, you're John. And just throws up all over him. <laughs> Bobby Steele's story from John Lennon's excursion into CBGB. But with that, the drive-thru is closed. And a wonderful song from Chris Rogers, CR in the CBNL. Once again, another great song from him. Of course, the Jim Cornette Experience returns this weekend, wherever you find your favorite podcast. And of course, the drive-thru right back here next week. Go through the archive today. Patreon.com slash Cornette. $5 a month gets you access to the archive. Going back to 2013, Patreon.com slash Cornette. Don't forget to subscribe to the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. Full episodes, clips of episodes, omnibus collections, all with the very popular Travis Heckle artwork, the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. You can follow Jim on Twitter at the Jim Cornette. You can follow me on Twitter at Great Brian Last. You can hear me on the 605 Super Podcast at 605pod.com or available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And don't forget about the wrestling news at thewrestlingnews.com or look for Arcadian Vanguard's The Wrestling News wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Coronet's Collectibles at jimcornet.com. What's going on, Jim? Uh, cameos. Saturday, March 4th, noon Eastern, limited again to 80 of them. Jump in. Last time they sold out in an hour. This is your makeup. This is for the people who got left out before. Get them while you can. Cameo video, personalized messages, Saturday, March 4th at noon Eastern, jimcornette.com. Just click on the cameo button. And more plugs next week. At jimcornette.com. Of course, the drive-thru is brought to you by the law office of Stephen P. New, 692 8084. Get even with Stephen at newlawoffice.com. But until this weekend on the experience, and next week right back here on the drive through for Jim Cornette, I'm the great Brian Last. Tell you! Well, it's Jim Cornette's drive through Yes, it's Jim Cornette's drive through Please shut up and listen while Corny is shooting. Yes, while Corny is shooting on Big Fucking Putin and those outlaw macho fucks. Joey, Ryan, the young bucks, the rednecks and dumb fucks, and them dork order bum fucks. And then there's Jelly Janella and Santino Marella, the boogeyman, the boogeyman, the boogeyman. Corny's drive through. Corny's drive through. Tony's drive-thru Well, it's all elite wrestling Tony Khan is investing his billions of dollars In some dumb cosplay wrestlers Yeah, they think they are wrestlers In video games just like Kenny Omega To the pro wrestling for which he stands. No blow up dolls, kick spots, or dance routines with blood, sellouts, and shoot angles for all. Uh, 
And have you heard about Riho? She weighs 45 kilos and she's their champion. She's a Japanese schoolgirl. All the Japanese schoolgirls like Kenny Omega love to play with his Sega. Yeah, they play with his Sega. You need to sue the guy for you. Steven, Pedro, everybody. Tony's drive through Tony's drive through Tony's drive through Tony's drive through And now, here are your hosts, Jim Cornette and the great Brian Lass.